Thanks for listening to Chicago's Morning Answer podcast sponsored by Signature Bank. Signature Bank takes pride in helping customers grow their business and provide unmatched banking expertise, custom financial solutions, and the industry's best technology. So whether you're a business looking for a deposit relationship or needs a ready source of financing, Signature Bank is the right bank for you. Call today at 773-467-5600 to hear how Signature Bank can help your business grow and thrive. Member FDIC, Equal Housing Lender. This is Chicago's Morning Answer with Dan Proft and Amy Jacobson on AM560, The Answer. Top of the morning, Dan and Amy. Yesterday, uh, we had comments for the first time from Zach Taylor. He's the coach of the Cincinnati Bengals. On what happened on Monday night uh, during the game against the Buffalo Bills, in which Demar Hamlin, of course, as everybody knows now, was uh, well went into cardiac arrest after a hit, hit. on the field. And they still don't know suspended. if it's yeah. They still don't know if that hit caused it. Um, the NFL is doing a separate investigation. They said to look into that. But yeah, this morning he's still in critical condition on a ventilator, but they said his signs are improving. And so here's uh, what Zach Taylor had. You know, uh, this this was uh, much more thoughtful and measured commentary <clears throat> than we're getting, generally speaking, from sports media, of course. But uh, I thought uh, part of what he had to say, uh, since he was you know a first person participant in the moment um, about his fellow coach Sean McDermott of the Buffalo Bills, I thought this was really a positive thing and it speaks to the relationship between coaches and players the great ones at least at every level and so i wanted to make sure people uh, heard this when i got over there uh, the first thing he said was i need to be at the hospital tomorrow and i shouldn't be coaching this game and so that to me provides all the clarity because there were there was no uh, unprecedented is the word that gets thrown out a lot about this situation because that's what it is uh, but in that moment he really uh, showed who he was, that, that all his focus was just on DeMar and being there for him, being there for his family at the hospital. And, and at that point, um, I think everybody, everything trended in the, in the direction it needed to trend and the right decisions were made there. But, um, again, just, just uh, the way that I, I really felt Sean McDermott led in that moment for his players. He was there for his players. He, he... Yeah, I think that's um... – a great testament to the character of Sean McDermott, also to the importance of uh, adult judgment. Adult judgment in an era where in every institution we have policies and procedures. So I'm not allowed to make decisions for myself. I can't think for myself, even in a leadership position, because we have this policies and procedures manual. So I just go to the manual because whoever comprised that manual has contemplated every possible contingency in the environment, hardly. At some point, in a leadership position, you're going to have to make a judgment call. That's what we don't do anymore. And Sean McDermott, uh, along with Zach Taylor, did it in that moment. And so by the time you know, the league had called in on what to, to do about this, the teams had already made the decision, the right one. Something else, too, since I've been so critical of ESPN, and rightly so, that criticism stands, I'm not walking back any of the criticism I've leveled. But I'll also point out 
the positive, the talk about an indelible moment on any media outlet, much less ESPN, which is, again, a politically left outlet that happens to cover sports. That's what it's become. Maybe wasn't that at its inception, but that's what it is today. But uh, I don't want this moment to get overlooked either, since they were doing 24-7 coverage of this. It may have been missed by some. Uh, Dan Orlovsky is one of their color commentators. You know, they're, they're otherwise... They're Jeff Joniak. Like they're the no, color commentator not Jeff, for the not Bills. they're Jeff Joniak. They're, Jeff Joniak's a play-by-play guy. Um, one of the commentators on one of their roundtable shows that are otherwise unwatchable and unlistenable. Oh, one of those. He's okay. a former quarterback, backup mainly. I think he was the Lions for a time. Anyway, uh, he's opposite Marcus Spears, another former pro football player. But uh, Dan Orlovsky on Tuesday after the game, and I didn't see this till yesterday, so I apologize for our tardiness, but uh, he did this on the air. I've heard the Buffalo Bills organization say that we believe in prayer. And maybe this is not the right thing to do, but I want to, it's just on my heart that I want to pray for it is. DeMar Hamlin right, right, right now. Um, I'm going to do it out loud. I'm going to close my eyes. I'm going to bow my head, and I'm just going to pray for him. Um, God, we come to you in these moments that we don't understand, that are hard, uh, because we believe that you're God, and coming to you and praying to you um, has impact. We're... we're sad, we're angry, um, and we want answers, but some things are unanswerable. We just want to pray, truly come to you, and pray for strength for Damar, for healing for Damar, for comfort for Damar, to be with his family, to give them peace. If we didn't believe that prayer didn't work, we wouldn't ask this of you, God. Um, I believe in prayer. We believe in prayer. We lift up DeMar Hamlin's name in your name. Amen. 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 It's beautiful. Wow. Respectfully. I am so shocked they didn't go to color bars and tone. Yeah, right. cut out of that. 312-642-5600, turnkey.pro answer line. 64636-DA, turnkey.pro text line. Uh, <laughs> I'm shocked. <laughs> when, when people say thoughts and prayers and don't give a thought and don't say a prayer, which is most of these people, particularly those that are preening before their social media audiences. Oh, with hashtags, Hamlin Strong now, that's out. And, yeah. So, you know, the, the, oh, people just want to make a $25 donation to his, uh, his foundation, DeMar Hamlin's I'm talking about, or they want to they say hot thoughts and prayers, or they want to put a hashtag up, like you just said. Well, they're just, they're just, they don't know what to do, so they're trying to do something. Um, Dan Orlovsky, it's not just that he offered a thought and a prayer. He offered a thoughtful prayer, and he just told you what to do. He just told you what to do, and he just told you where we are in relation to God. But that's a problem in the secular world because uh, too many people who have designated themselves their God find out they're not all-powerful, and then they don't know what to do. So they do these vacuous things that we are witness to. Uh, rather than humbly submitting yourself, God, I am not all-powerful. You are. So I ask for you to put our brother, Damar Hamlin, in your hands and care for him, dear Lord. That's what Dan Orlovsky said. 
submitting humbly to the Almighty rather than characterizing yourself as the Almighty, which is exactly what all these look-at-me people are doing, whether they realize it or not. And I just love the contrast between what Dan Orlovsky and Marcus Spears, to his credit, who encouraged him and was right there along with him, I uh, yep. love what they did versus what we've seen, generally speaking, in the media, both sports and otherwise. I mean, it's all one big amalgam anyway, isn't it? Hmm. And yesterday, I mean, they, you know, the, the fund right now is up to $6.5 million. And so his family came out and said, we're going to donate to all of his charities, not just that one single charity. Uh, great. I mean, great. Uh, like I said, everything with, that uh, I know about DeMar Hamlin, which is <clears throat> not a lot. I remember when he played at Pittsburgh, actually, when I follow college football a lot more closely than I do these days. But, um, yeah, this, this, the, all of the commentary is about our culture and the reaction. It has nothing to do with DeMar Hamlin and his family who've, you know, who, who have uh, presented themselves very well from everything yeah. that I've seen. And it has nothing to do with this foundation and the good work he's otherwise doing. It's not a criticism of any of that. It's a criticism of self-appointed gods, small g, walking around among us who indicate their belief in their themselves as uh, deities by what they say if they're given a platform in the media <laughs> there's a lot of those well, or even on social media these are the same people that believe that obama could uh, make the waters recede these are the same people that think they can bend mother nature to their will that that these they can eradicate a virus that it's that attitude that you see on display here well, and people are so angry they want to blame somebody, and now the focus is blaming the NFL. They, they didn't cancel the game quick enough, and come on, they canceled the game. They knew they weren't going to play. The Bills coach wanted to go to the hospital. It's not Right, it's, it's not, just they don't really know what drum to bang. No, it's a competition for moral superiority, phony as it is. Who can express the most grief? Who can present as most overwrought? Who can be most critical? Because I would have done in that moment, I would have, you know, if I was Sean McDermott, I would have picked him up and carried him to the hospital myself. That's what Sean McDermott, I mean, that's the kind of attitude you're dealing with, with these neo-Jacobins. Right. Now they want the, you know, the Patriots played at the Bills this Sunday. They want the game canceled. How He's still in the hospital. How could you play the game? Well, they're playing the game. Because Jordan I'm sure that's what you'd want. Good morning. I think that's awesome that he opened up and, and uh, went into prayer publicly. Um, I think enough people don't do that. Uh, Good Friday, I turned my life over to Christ last year, or this 2022, and it was life-changing, allowing Christ to take control. And uh, I think that more and more people do that now. Is he ready for the repercussions for doing so? Because most of these people that have been offering prayer probably don't. Uh, most of these people, like you said, that are saying you're in our prayers, they don't. It's just a contest for him to openly pray. And, I mean, that was a heartfelt prayer um, for him to openly pray to his God. And I hope, I, now, I hope he stands, stands his ground when they come after him for it. Not enough people are, and we need to because Christ is king. Thank you. Have a wonderful day. Thanks for the call, Jordan. Dan and Amy, Chicago's Morning Answer. 
The more you listen, the more you listen, the more you'll know. This is Chicago's Morning Answer. Morning Answer on AM560. The answer. Hey, business owners, is your business and money in good hands? Does your bank invest in your success? Hi, Mike Gallagher here, letting you know that when you need a relationship bank, Signature Bank makes commercial banking personal. I love these guys. Not only do they have expansive industry experience, a strong financial track record, but they're also highly capitalized for strategic growth. That's so important. That's why Signature Bank is my bank. They know what it means to grow a business by designing solutions that are right for you and only you. These are real people. They're ready to help. So reach out to my friends at Signature Bank. Make the call today, 773-467-5630, 30, or visit them online at SignatureBank.Bank. That's SignatureBank.Bank. Your business could be Signature Bank's next success story. Go online, SignatureBank.Bank. Member FDIC, Equal Housing Lender. Signature Bank. Boston. Only the biggest stories, only the biggest guests, and only the biggest opinions. This is AM560, The Answer. Top of the morning, Dan and Amy. We've got a mayor's race uh, going on in Chicago. Have you taken notice it's less than the election? The primary is 55 days away, yeah. 54 days away. February 28th. That's right. Anybody that uh, signs up? Anybody doing anything? Starting to heat up. Well, there's some new spots on the air. We'll get to those in a second. But this is an opportunity, yet another election, to weigh in on... And and that also goes with respect to school board and municipal races in the spring to weigh in on the policies that were pursued by these elected officials, particularly but not limited to pandemic policies. Carol Markowitz is a columnist for The New York Post. You've heard her on our program many times. Love her. She moved her family from New York to Florida last year. She's written a lot about pandemic policies. Here's why she did it. Families like mine, for example, we very famously moved from New York to Florida during the pandemic because of the pandemic policies of the state. Uh, We were never going to leave New York. We were really going to definitely die New Yorkers. Uh, And then we realized that our kids couldn't live in this crazy place that was not ending their pandemic restrictions at any normal pace. And we're continuing to target children specifically, even though they were the lowest risk group, uh, with those restrictions. So uh, families like mine saw something that we couldn't unsee during the pandemic pandemic. We saw the way children were treated and we saw just the insanity that these blue areas inflicted on their residents. And we thought we got to get out of here. Are you going to die a Chicagoan? 312-642-5600 turnkey.pro answer line. 646-36DA turnkey.pro text line. Are you last to the mass in Chicago? (laughs) You're one of five people that I know that got up and just moved their families. Out of Illinois, or my friend Paula Ferris moved her family out of New York. Like we, we, we have to, our kids have to be in school. They have to have a normal life. And the the red Republican red states did it right. I mean, if you look at the top ten states, Florida gained three hundred and eighteen thousand, Texas two hundred and thirty thousand, North Carolina, South Carolina, Tennessee, Georgia, Arizona had seventy thousand, and then you look at California. They lost 343,000 in New York, almost lost 300,000 residents. So, I mean, you know, they, people say, oh, the pandemic's over, so I don't, you know, 
I don't have to move now, but something else is going to happen. I think next is climate change, that they might lock us in our house for climate change. Yeah, I don't think it's over uh, in these urban centers, and Carol Markowitz makes that point, which we'll get to in a second, but something else to consider that she said there. We saw something we couldn't unsee. We were lashed to the mass. We were New Yorkers for life, but then we saw something we couldn't unsee. And I wonder, and I, I don't know the answer, if there has been enough seen by enough people in Chicago who can no longer unsee what they've seen. I, I don't think so. The November election sort of spoke to that question. But maybe in the intervening four months, there'll be a bigger shift. Maybe there'll be a recognition when it comes to local elections. Maybe that's where a reckoning can occur. I don't know. Can you continue to pretend you haven't seen what you've seen? I just I love that phrase by Carol Marquis because it speaks to the mentality of denizens, particularly of urban centers. We saw something we could not see. We tried to ignore it. We tried to ignore all the other stuff going on in New York. We dutifully uh, averted our eyes. But when it came to our kids' education, we couldn't unsee that. That was the final straw for a lot of people. They said, you, you mess with me. That's one thing. You're messing with my children now and their mental well-being and their education and their right to a government school. That's a different thing. And now we're leaving. Uh, Carol Markowitz uh, was asked if uh, she has any regrets about the move. So I get that question a lot. Absolutely not. We do not re- regret the decision for a second. We've been so happy and blessed to be Floridians. Uh, and you know, the thing is that people think that the restrictions have been lifted, but I hear from parents all across the country, and they say things like, I still haven't been inside my children's classroom. My yeah. kids' uh, public school in Brooklyn that my sons went to, they still don't have indoor events, and they don't live in uh, sunny Florida. They are in cold weather, and they're still having all their events outside. And again, this targeting of children specifically it continues to happen in all these blue areas. I think it's because they continue to listen to the teachers' unions that want these draconian policies, and they don't have any backbone to stand up to them. So I think when you get out of a blue state and you come to a red area and you see the sanity and the normalcy and the way the kids are put first, no way anybody's going back. i got to tell you, Dan, there is a middle school here in Chicago. They still do not allow fans to come into girls' volleyball games or basketball games or boys' games, and they're still not doing their um, concerts and their events and their dances, you know, where boys can talk to girls. It's kind of like, you know, square dancing back in the 80s. They're still not doing that because of COVID. Shame right. on them. Right. So, so yeah, you're this, right. This is not over. No. And, it's you know, at the same time this is happening, we have all these calls for, hey, let's some things didn't go right, but, you know, oh, let's, yeah. not, let's not get bogged down on who killed who. You know, let's not get bogged down on those details. Uh, to borrow from Marty, Monty Python, let's just you know focus on uh, self-reflection and charting a path forward, and all the other bromides you hear from these politicians masquerading as public health professionals, uh, as well as the actual politicians themselves. But right, right, and so uh, that lack of change when it comes to those policies. But then changes that are occurring when it comes to other policies, like, for example, one of the things that's driving people out of New York City and into the suburbs, if not out of the state altogether, which, by the way, Kathy Hochul was all supportive of. 
Kathy Hochul told Lee Zeldin and his five and a half million supporters to get the hell out of the state. And then at her inaugural address, she's like, we have to stop people from leaving this state. Well, which is it? <laughs> she's such she's such a hot mess. And it get in your bus, show. get on a plane, get in a bus, go to Florida, yeah. she said. She said Republicans get on a bus and get go to Florida. That is exactly what she said. And now mm-hmm. she's saying we have to stop and we have to bring them back. They're not coming back. And remember, and, when- and, 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 and at least she's recognizing that people are leaving here. We, we don't we're, so we want to talk about beautiful lies. You want to talk about pretending not to see what is happening. We got a governor and a political class saying that Illinois is growing. <laughs> we lost one hundred and forty one thousand six hundred and fifty six residents. That's a lot. And but, they're acting like, well, but I don't know how they're trying to spin this. It's just mind-boggling. It's, there's no spin. There's just a, there's just a direct, <laughs> direct lie, just direct agitprop. Do, do not believe your lying eyes. Believe what we say. And a majority of this state is saying, okay, and a majority of the city, for sure. We'll see if that changes. That's my question. And we'll get to the Chicago in just a second with these new ads up from Vallis and from Lightfoot. But um, one other thing that's happening in big cities, too, like New York where they uh, eliminated their merit-based selective schools. And they're going to a straight lottery. Well, that's pulling, you know, the the urban sophisticates who want to live in the big city where all the action is but don't want to send their kids to the government school they or or not just the neighborhood government school. It's got to be a school that actually has a track record of educating kids and preparing them for, you know, a path to the Ivy League or wherever else. These status-driven, uh, you know, Mercedes Marxists in New York. Well, oh, I can't, I can't unsee this. I can't unsee that um, my schools, my kids' schools' quality is going to decline because there's no longer a threshold to get in. It's just a straight-up lottery. Now, the interesting thing is, the proponents of the straight-up lottery are are generally opponents of school choice. So, on the one hand, let's get more black and brown students in selective enrollment schools by eliminating the selective enrollment, turning it into a lottery. On the other hand, if we made money available attached to the kids and let parents and and you know families choose where to send their kids to school, public no, we can't do that. I mean, they're just awash in contradictions, and this is the key word too. And DeSantis mentioned it in his inaugural address. It's not just freedom. It's sanity. It's what are you doing with your freedom? We're organizing things like schools in a sensible way. This is sane. This comports with common sense. And you cannot say that about, for example, school systems in places like New York and Chicago. And more and more parents, regardless of their political persuasion, and if you're on the left, regardless of your willingness to admit how awash you are in contradiction, you at least have enough concern about your kids to say, well, I got to sheepishly move away from the implications of the politician of the policy choices that I support via the politicians I vote for. That's what's happening. And this is why you see half a million people uh, net leave New York in the last two years. And as we talked about earlier in the week, the great talk about, again, averting your eyes. 
the great inverse uh, re- inverse relationship between population and legislative salaries. At the same time, they lost half a million people. Yeah, they gave themselves a raise. Thirty percent raise to one hundred forty-two grand a year. They're now the highest paid state legislators in the country. They presided over a mass exodus of five hundred thousand people over the last two years. Is there a bigger commentary on a on, on elected state officials than an exodus like that? I, if, it, if there is, I don't know what it is. I mean, it's just fascinating. Yeah. Three one two six four two five six zero zero turnkey dot pro answer line six four six three six type in D A then a quick comment. Leo Wicker Park, you're on Chicago's morning answer. Yeah, hi. Uh it's uh, kinda sad that people are leaving, but if they're finding a happier life elsewhere, all power to them. You know, it though it doesn't uh, really agree. matter how many people leave. It's fine here and people are happy being here. Exactly. Leo, really, it's, it's wonderful here, Leo. Yeah. No, Leo? it's wonderful here. Leo, safe walking. No, Leo, do you feel safe walking outside your house, Leo? You just you just heard him. Leo is ecstatic to be here. Good. What is, is? Exactly. He doesn't look over his shoulder now like he never used to before. People he are know happy. When he's carjacked. I mean, come it's, on. I, I'm, I'm. Look, I completely agree with Leo. I, I I don't know what makes Leo happy. What's going on in Chicago makes Leo happy. He sh- he wants to stay. Great, stay. Enjoy it. And if other people want to move to some place that is freer and more sane, then they should do that. And they are doing that. They're going to have high, happier, better lives. That's great, too. I mean, look, I'm all for allowing people to wallow in their own filth if they want to. That's what being a free people means. So Leo is happy to wallow in Willow in, in uh, Wicker Park and call that happiness. Hey, you know, happiness is uh, an individual happiness is decision. Hearing gunshots? No, no, happiness is hearing hey, gunshots. Maybe really? he likes the action. Huh? Makes things exciting for Leo. The sirens going off all the time. Never I love it. Happened ten years ago. I love it. But I just but but so you, you like people who could who could abide this? Who could uh, pay any attention whatsoever and say things are great? Leo in Wicker Park and many many more residents of Chicago like him. I'm so glad he called. Yes. Actually, yeah, I'm glad he yes. called, too. All right. Uh, well, speaking of Chicago, so we got this mayor's race that's uh, picking up in pace. I don't know if it's picking up in pace in terms of your interest level. Three one two six four two fifty six hundred Turkey Turnkey Pro Answer Line. Paul Vallis is up with two new ads okay. focused on public safety and making sure everybody knows he's a Democrat before he starts getting accused of being a Republican by Lori Lightfoot and Chewy Garcia. Uh, Paul Vallis on crime. Crime is out of control, and combative leadership is failing us. Paul Vallis will put crime and your safety first. I'll work with every community in every part of our city to confront our crime problem, hold department leadership accountable, put more police on our streets and public transportation. Open schools after hours to ensure young Chicagoans have safe alternatives to gangs and violence. And I'll bring people together to get it done. Paul Vallis, crime and your safety is his top priority. Mm-hmm. One more. Paul Vallis, lifelong Democrat. Okay. Crime is Chicago's biggest problem. And Paul Vallis is a lifelong Democrat who puts crime and your safety first. As city budget director, he made public safety a priority, helping grow the police department to record levels. Crime came down. Later, Vallis advised President Obama's Department of Justice on needed criminal justice reforms. 
And when Mayor Lightfoot and our police were at odds, Paul Vallis led negotiations that got an agreement no one thought possible. Paul Vallis. The difference? He puts crime and your safety first. So that's Vallis. I mean, it's... Um, what do you think, Dan? I, th- I mean, I think it's, you know, I think it's the right issue. I, I don't think those commercials hurt him in any way. I mean, they're so positively conventional and vanilla, um, which is part of the problem with Paul Vallis. But uh, so, yeah, okay, fine. I'll take boring. I'll take nerdy. I don't care. Well, that there's there's an argument to be made for that. Right. Do you I'm want uh, fanfare? Do, do you want this this these embarrassing spectacles that have punctuated the Lightfoot years, or do you want somebody who's buttoned down and serious about these things and is just being very straightforward and um, uh, professional? How about about this? addressing them? Start with somebody who's not making TikTok videos, okay? Right. So well, embarrassing. Yeah, because kids love when their moms make TikToks. <laughs> Uh, Lightfoot hasn't turned her sights on Vallis yet, but she has yeah. turned her sights on Chewy Garcia, who is the putative front runner at this point. It's, it's bunched up though between Lightfoot, Chewy, Vallis, and and Willie Wilson. Uh, here's Lori Lightfoot's hit on Chewy, uh, not just because of the money he took from SBF, but including that. What do we really know about Chewy Garcia? Chewy secretly talked with this crypto crook who stole his customer's life savings, then spent a fortune to re-elect Garcia. Chewy cut deals to help himself with the since-indicted Mike Madigan, even while the disgraced speaker faced a federal corruption investigation. And Chewy took money from a red-light camera company just hours before he delivered the deciding vote that made the company millions. Crypto crooks, indicted Pauls, and pay-to-play profiteers. The more you know, the worse it gets. Uh, now that's a little upbeat. Yeah, I and mean, she's got like you know, she's like, like, it's a like a clown show. marionette, oh, yeah, kind of thing. Again, it's relatively conventional. I think that's a pretty good hit for Lori Lightfoot's yeah. purposes because she has a low ceiling. She is just viewed very unfavorably by most of the demographics in Chicago, so she's got a problem. But the demographic, so the demographics where she has to make her bones, black voters, and it's a, it's you know, and there's half a dozen black candidates in the field that all take a little bit of oh, that yeah. universe. Yep. But the other, don't forget, that put her over the top and sent her with such a wide margin to victory. Lakefront liberals, the uh, Chardonnay Antifa on the lakefront. Oh, yes. I know them well. And so the so so a lot of people will not be, you know, particularly moved by taking campaign cash from this guy or cutting deals with Madigan. But the 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 self-styled, they're not really good government voters, but they pretend to be, they think they are. The self-styled goo-goos, this has appeal. And she's going to need uh, as many of those voters as she can get just to make the runoff. So politically, I think that's actually a pretty smart play by Lightfoot's campaign. But, uh, you know, I think it's uh, effective. It's, it's going it, to I mean, it's it's going to be dicey. I, you know, of those four, you could you could envision a scenario where almost any combination of two of those four could be in the runoff. It's very, very interesting. So um, we should start tuning in to this over the next uh, month and a half. And we will on Morning Answer. 
Before you see it on TV, share it on Facebook, or read about it in the paper. Hear it here first. This is Chicago's Morning Answer on AM560. The answer. Business owners, now's the time for your business to make the move to a locally owned business bank. Hi, Mike Gallagher here to let you know that you don't have to look far. Signature Bank was founded in Chicago with a simple mission to help companies like yours grow, succeed, and thrive. Their decisions are made locally by a terrific team that knows your name, cares about your business, and invests in your success. That's why Signature Bank is my bank. I'm a customer. As business owners, they knew that local family-owned businesses were not getting the help they needed or deserved. So, I invite you to reach out to my friends at Signature Bank today. Write the number down. Remember this phone number, Signature Bank, 773-467-5630. And learn all about this great bank, 773-467-5630. Or visit them online at SignatureBank.Bank. That's SignatureBank.Bank. Signature Bank makes commercial banking personal. Member FDIC, Equal Housing Lender. This is Chicago's Morning Answer with Dan Proft and Amy Jacobson on AM560, The Answer. Top of the morning, Dan and Amy. At this point, it seems like, excuse me, Congressman Kevin McCarthy needs a... I don't know, an intervention from, I don't even know who would intervene. Who would be the Jimmy Chitwood of the Republican Party to come in and say, I think it's time for me to start playing again. (laughs) One thing, um, I stay, or I play, coach stays, coach goes, I go. That's about what he needs because he went from 0 for 3 to 0 for 6 yesterday, and it seems like the 20 or so holdouts are just going to round robin different alternative candidates for speaker to vote for it started with jim jordan yesterday moved to byron donalds um they got uh you know a couple dozen more they can keep this going for a while or as i I suspect would have happened last night after they adjourned until uh this afternoon that there will be a conversation between kevin mccarthy and his senior backers like steve scalise and those holdouts and see if a deal can be made so that when Congress reconvenes today, there is going to be a candidate for speaker that will get 218 votes. That's what I hope and suspect happened last night. Well, I mean, according to CNN, and it is CNN, that he offered more concessions. Because listen to this, the the 20, and some are calling them the Taliban 20, some are calling them the rebels. I don't know what you're calling them, but... They want to make sure that McCarthy's super PAC doesn't get involved in primaries, which means don't retaliate against us because of what we're doing right now. Don't you think? Well, well, right. And also don't get involved in picking, uh, you know, moderate candidates over conservatives from the perspective of most of those 20. I'm sure that's their perspective. Yeah, they want more Freedom Caucus members on House Rules Committee. Um, they want to, you know, propose rules change to allow one member to call a vote to oust the speaker and promises to vote on some priority bills for holdouts, including term limits. Yeah. Well, so, again, here, you know, there's there's some, um, I think, legitimate criticism in both directions. I think this is 
and the Wall Street Journal editorial board provides a good example of this. I think this is, there's like undue hysteria associated with the last two days and this contest for speaker. It is like way overheated. Like the future of the republic depends on it. Here we go again with, you know, threat to our democracy, yeah. Taliban 20 and rebels and and uh, terrorist tactics. I mean, it's really irresponsible uh, sort of leftist type hysterical rhetoric coming from Newt Gingrich, coming from Dan Crenshaw, coming from others. And, and listen Ta- to, them, to, to, yeah, to tamp it down. Well, it's a leadership fight. It is a contest for the management of the House Republican caucus. It is not an existential crisis in the history of the United States, for God's sakes. Get a hold well, of yourself. Now there's virtual signaling. Did you hear what Chip Roy said yesterday? That's, this is about race. For the first time in history, there have been two black Americans placed into the nomination for Speaker of the House. So wow. this is tell- I mean, because Jeffrey's on the Democrat side, and obviously your guy, Byron Donalds. Uh, he didn't, he didn't say it's about race. He's just pointing out that. And then is... Corey, and, and in part because Corey Bush, one of the social spice girls that, with the big security detail down there in St. Louis, said that uh, Byron Donalds, you know, is a token and he's a tool of white supremacists and so forth. So the left is always making about race. You know, I, I don't care if you take note of that and shove it right back down their throats, particularly since they, the Congressional Black Caucus, House Black Caucus, wouldn't let Byron Donalds be a member because he's, you know, a conservative. Right. So the hell with that. Go ahead. Shove it right down their throats. All right. What about President Trump? I mean, obviously, his endorsement of McCarthy didn't change one vote. Well, the, the, I mean, it's, 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 it's they're separate and distinct. I mean, all roads lead back to Trump, except they don't. Um, you know, the operation of the House and, for example, the, that PAC issue is a real issue. I've dealt with it at the local level in Illinois. And you have this posture that's often taken by the leadership of a caucus says we're not going to get it. We, we don't get involved in primaries, except we always protect incumbents. Well, first of all, uh, both of those positions I oppose, I think, are silly. Um, management means you do get involved in the management of a party means you do get involved in elections. Um, but you also don't protect incumbents regardless of their job performance, regardless of what they did. You have incumbents that turn on the party and are collaborating with Democrats on issues that are central to the policy agenda. Well, then you could say, yeah, you know what? You have done something that uh, – leads us to say we can do better in that district than you and we're going to back a primary challenge which is what i did at the legislative level for a few cycles you'll remember in the last decade and so there should be no problem with that primary election yeah the 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 seat is not someone's birthright just like the speakership isn't it's a competition within uh, a closed universe at least in this case with respect to house republicans or in a primary election in states like illinois with respect to republican primary voters you're not entitled to anything. You get to run for it. That's your opportunity. And so do other people. So what's what? I mean, the the Wall Street Journal at Turbo, they, they should read their columnist Holman Jenkins column about 2022 being the year in exaggeration. Everything is hysterical. Uh, the crisis in police relations with black Americans, the crisis uh, with uh, 
election deniers. They're threats. Everything's a threat to our democracy, and everyone's a fascist for having a different view. It's also ridiculous. And also the the tamping down of things that are serious, like oh I don't know the uh, the FBI the 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 FBI collaboration colluding with big tech companies and the intelligence community along with them to censor and suppress freedom of expression in this country, the uh, FBI spiking an investigation into Hunter Biden for political reasons. I mean, the Twitter files speak to this, though that is a big issue and that's not getting any coverage at all. But things that are marginal issues, things that are just outright invented, it's a threat to our democracy, all hands on deck, the 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 ship of state is going down. Yeah, the left we're we're left leaderless. I mean, it's all come on. And and so this is what we have here. Uh, uh, the Wall Street Journal editorial, editorial boards editorial. After two days of intra GOP stalemate over elected Kevin McCarthy, our main question is why the California congressman still wants the job. Oh yeah, right. I don't want to do this. <laughs> Who would want the job? The Every member of the House. Yes, please. Are you serious? I mean, they're so this. The Wall Street Journal editorial board has lost their minds here. They're, they're the, the way they characterized people. Uh, the rebels, the rebels, they oh, referred to them. Coordinated Taliban Jim 20. Jordan, who doesn't want the job. They nominated Byron Donalds, a second termer who has no chance, but he does have a higher name ID now. Um, at, at this point. All of this isn't so much about McCarthy as about whether he or anyone else can lead a coherent majority for the next two years. A small faction hold him hostage at any time and so on and so forth. They talk about the they they essentially characterize these holdouts who are not, generally speaking, unserious people of being, uh, you know, nut jobs. Andy Biggs received only 31 votes in November. The November contest was with McCarthy to become GOP leader. He'd lose a race against the Capitol parking lot attendant is the language in the Wall Street Journal editorial. Uh, what? Um, there are legitimate reasons to oppose McCarthy. And again, I go back to the House Freedom Caucus chairman talking about watching McCarthy for 14 years in leadership and what has he done. And by the way, interestingly, from the more moderate wing of the party, Will Hurd, a former Republican congressman from Texas who was a moderate anti-Trumper, got kicked out in the primary. Primary elections, fine. Uh, complaining, saying McCarthy's not ready to be a legislative leader. He he talked a game, good game with Paul Ryan and Eric Cantor back in the day of wanting to be a conservative reformer, but he never showed much interest in actually pursuing uh, important legislative proposals. He's been great at fundraising and great at helping underwrite elections, but he hasn't been serious when it comes to legislation, to policy, and that's a problem. So there's there's some consistent criticism sort of across the ideological spectrum within the Republican caucus that can't easily be dismissed the way that the Wall Street Journal editorialists want to dismiss it. And unless we forget, and this is not like a, I'm not here to tear down Kevin McCarthy. I'm just here to provide some context. Uh, I mean, you remember Kevin McCarthy, this is his second chance to be speaker. He was going, he was the presumptive successor to John Boehner. Right. When John Boehner stepped down, announced he was stepping down in 2015, the day after that happened, 
Kevin McCarthy went out to give this foreign policy speech to present himself as like, I've got the intellectual chops for this. I'm somebody that can represent America on a global stage, you know, not just the domestic politics and uh, the election piece of it, but geopolitics. And here are some of the highlights, if you will, from that speech. You don't have the same as difficult decision. This White House is managing the decline and putting us in tough decisions for the future. Petraeus and Crocker had an effective politically strategy to match the military strategy. The simple promise to all of our heroes to the need when they need it most. The president would allow the ban on Iranian oil exports to be lifted and also stand by a Russia blackmails an entire continent all the while keeping the place of the ban on America. In the past few years alone, I have visited Poland, Hungary, Estonia. Hungary. I visited Hungary, Estonia, and all the countries that end in IA. Uh, They had a politically strategy along with a military one. He's reading a speech. I know, and it's so painful to listen to that. I mean, it was it was right now. It was not a singular gaffe. It was somebody who couldn't string string. It wasn't extemporaneous. It was a prepared speech. Couldn't read. He couldn't read the prepared speech. Right. So and I don't um, think Hungria was in the teleprompter. Right. He needed to be hooked on phonics uh, before (laughs) he gave that speech. So I'm just saying he's had a chance before and he was found wanting which is why Paul Ryan ha- came in as the reluctant consensus alternative and now fast forward 8 years and we're in the same position or 7 you know, yeah about 8 years we're in the, the the same position with trying to find somebody who wants to or who will i guess be a reluctant speaker since Kevin McCarthy can't put together the votes and as we mentioned yesterday this is something that is largely the doing of Kevin McCarthy because he was dismissive, did not take seriously these Freedom Caucus members. Right. And it's not all of them because obviously Jim Jordan is part of the Freedom Caucus and he's nominated Kevin and supporting Kevin McCarthy. But these Freedom Caucus members who went to him in the summer, went to him in the fall, and they were ignored because I don't need you was the approach that Kevin McCarthy or the attitude that he displayed. And clearly over the intervening months – since the first leadership vote in November, he didn't make the deal that he should have made to avoid the spectacle that you've seen over the last two days. So but, is oh, that on the holdouts? Well, you can argue that. Is that on Kevin McCarthy? You can argue that, too. And it's a shame that people like Crenshaw and Newt and the Wall Street Journal editorial board don't see the other side of it. But Kevin McCarthy raised money for all of these candidates who are not voting for him right now. That's your job as the House Minority Leader is to raise money for the NRCC and to have the NRCC be in the business of winning elections so that you get a majority. I mean, Victoria Sparks, you know, the congresswoman out of Indiana, she's Ukrainian. She voted present. And McCarthy was by her side several times during the campaign. Well, again, because you supported me doesn't mean necessarily mean that I think you should be speaker if there's a better choice. I mean, um, I, I, that what minority leader seeking the speakership wouldn't have supported Victoria Sparks or Lauren Boebert? I mean, who won her race in Colorado? Uh, you know, barely. I mean. Uh, 
so and and Boebert seems to indicate that she didn't really get support from the NRCC, and this goes back to the PAC thing. Like, if you're not with me, or if I think you somehow present a threat, or you're not going to fall in line when I say fall in line, then I'm going to withhold funding your campaign. Maybe I would even fund a primary opponent if you got that. This is why assurances are demanded is because trust is non-existent and that's a problem for somebody who wants to be the caucus leader whatever your position is they're saying we don't trust it that's a problem you need to stake out positions with respect to how you govern how you would govern the caucus how you would engage uh, both in terms of elections winning elections as well as moving policy and McCarthy hasn't made the case to uh, to well, to about two dozen legislators, and maybe more if there was an alternative that they thought was more viable than McCarthy. I think, you know, Jim Jordan or Steve Scalise could get a majority of well, could majority could get the two eighteen if it was the decision of McCarthy to stand down, I'm, and I'm maybe that's the, what this yeah. is going to come to. I'm going with the House Deputy with Patrick McHenry. Silent. Nobody knows who he is. He wears the bow tie. Looks, you know, he could be a little sleeper cell, don't you think? Uh, sleeper cell. I mean, not um, sleeper cell. Like just a sneaker that's come back in, and nobody knows who he is, and then he'd get elected possibly. If well, worst comes no, to worst, I don't think the bow tie is going to be enough. But I think that <laughs> like, Scalise probably. I think Scalise. Yeah, Denny Hastert is available. Right. Yeah. Did you say Denny Hastert? Did. President yeah. Trump's available. People are throwing his name around yesterday, too. I don't think so. Um, but Steve Scalise is a more realistic option. And, you know, Ken Buck, congressman from Colorado, who, by the way, backing McCarthy, uh, was on the cable news talkies yesterday saying the same thing I'm saying. Look, at some point, you either are demonstrate you're able to cut a deal or you have, and this is apparently what he said to Kevin McCarthy, so he said, or you have to step down and we have to elevate somebody who can get to 218. I mean, that's where it's at. And again, if, if this plays out for another couple days, I mean, I'm sort of in the, in the David Harsani camp on this. He had a good piece in the Federalist, much more sort of rational and, measured than the wall street journal editorial board i'm ashamed to describe them that way but that's what it's deserved uh relax the gop fight over house speaker doesn't really matter i mean it matters somewhat but he's right that it's just a vote about management um uh, somewhere in the vicinity of zero voters will change their worldview or political affiliation because the gop is taking a few extra days to grind out their leadership vote nor is there anything particularly dysfunctional, quote-unquote, about disagreeing on the question. McCarthy isn't an admiral or preordained by the Lord to be speaker, so this isn't mutiny. It's just a vote. Indeed, a battle over leadership shows a more small-D democratic dynamic than the typical lockstepping on the matter. In most other democratic nations, this kind of parliamentary fight would be considered tame and completely expected. Uh, right. And so the, the, the hewing and crying yesterday from the Dem caucus when uh, a barb was offered in their direction from Florida Congresswoman uh, Kat uh, Kat, uh, Kamek. This was fun. This is good. Diversity of thought is a good thing. It's one of the things that sets us apart from our friends on the other side of the aisle. Yes, diversity of thought is a good thing. But they want us divided. 
They want us to fight each other. That much has been made clear by the popcorn and blankets and alcohol that is coming over Uh there. Who's boozing? Oh, now she done it, Dan. Yeah. The house is not in order. has water in it, not vodka. You're, order, you're out of order. This whole country's out of order. I mean, okay, well, whatever. I actually love that because it shows like what, <laughs> what juveniles most of these members of Congress are. Well, you can see them eating popcorn, though. They didn't bring in popcorn, but I don't know about the booze. Yeah, well, you better check uh, Maxine Waters' mug. Uh, Eric in Rolling Meadows. Hey, good morning, guys. I was watching a little cable news last night just after Tucker was done, and uh, the talking head was, well, they were completely making it personal, even though, I forgot the woman's name, the senator, she was just saying, he doesn't have the vote, and they're making it personal. And they, Troy Gowdy came on next and said, yeah, obviously she has a personal grudge against him, and it's just amazing. They're not going on based on the fact that nobody wants him there. They're, it's, they want to get rid of the old. They want new, and no one's accepting it. So it's pretty amazing how they just shut her down, and even Troy Gowdy was up there just, Talking heads, you know, it's personal, it's personal. We know what's happening. The machine doesn't. The machine wants to take over again. Well, but thanks for the caller. By the way, um, if your vote is based on like a personal disagreement with uh, the candidate, get over it. That's acceptable. Huh. It's acceptable to say I, I got a personal issue with this person, and that's why I'm not voting for. It. And because the, the personal issue is going to relate back to something along the lines of trust, I suspect. Uh, um. So, I mean, it's a, oh, it's personal, as opposed to everyone else who's, uh, whose motives are completely pure. There's, not, there's no, nothing personal that's informing the supporters of Kevin McCarthy, as opposed to the opponents. On the one hand, there are all these angels in the Republican caucus. On the other hand, there are the rebels, the Taliban. Tw- it's all so overheated well do you think any of these 20 congressmen and women are doing this to elevate their profile because now now people i mean people know who lauren bobert was but now people are you know mary miller's on that list of the 20 and there's others too yeah i i you know i'm sure that the idea of elevating your profile is part of the calculus because it's part of the calculus for every single member of congress Every single man. I mean, again, the idea that there are the there's a selfless group here and there's a selfish group. Wrong. There is a, a bunch of self-interested politicians pursuing their interests. And if you want to be their leader, then you have to align the interests with your own. And if you can't solve that equation, then you're going to have to step aside for someone who can. It's as simple as that. Dan and Amy, Chicago's Morning Answer. Before you see it on TV, share it on Facebook or read about it in the paper. Hear it here first. This is Chicago's Morning Answer on AM560. The Answer. If you're looking for the latest news, insight into what it means, and the sharpest opinion, there's only one station in Chicago where you can turn, and it's this one. We're AM560. The Answer. Top of the morning, Dan and Amy. Today is uh, Pope Benedict's funeral. Of course, he died over the holiday. And uh, you may be wondering, well, is President Biden going to attend? Fox News reporter caught up to him on the tarmac and asked, 
You're not attending his funeral tomorrow, though. Why? Uh, well, why do you attend? Well, but you tell me. I don't know why. I don't know. You can tell me, sir. Uh, Uh, it's hard to hear because of Air Force One or whatever that was, Marine One behind him. But um, he's uh, he's not attending. Why do you, why why do you think? Oh, I have some ideas. I have some ideas. There's a big entourage coming for him. The if he shows up. Yeah, the, the the logistics of it. Um, uh, we okay. would get we would get in the way. He said, "Really? Yeah, Is that the reason he's not attending? Is Kamala Harris going to go at least? Because then that what vice presidents do? They go to." World leaders' funerals. I don't think she's attending. Why? Why do you think? Because well, they mm-hmm. don't like Catholics. Uh, they like uh, s- ceremonial Catholics, ornamental Catholics like Joe Biden. We call them Catholic who's, lights. Who's, no, not Catholic light. Not Catholic light. They have nothing to do with Catholicism. If you're a pro-abort-on-demand politician... If you're a tool of the teachers' union opposing opportunities to minority children, largely minority children, low-income families, low-to-middle-income families, largely disproportionately minority, if you don't know what a woman is, then you can call yourself whatever you want, just like a man can call himself a woman. doesn't make it so. Ornamental Catholics, people who use that as a label to pander come election time like joe biden does and always has Uh, a favorite observation of mine from pope benedict so appropriate for our time particularly as people see every political spat as a existential threat to world order he wrote in uh, uh, a book Truth and Tolerance, which was a compilation of his lectures, one of his observations. Whenever politics tries to be redemptive, it promises too much. Where it wishes to do the work of God, it becomes not divine, but demonic. And isn't that our culture, particularly as promulgated by the left? Politics is the path of redemption. And when it does that, it becomes not divine, but demonic. Doesn't know its place. Because we don't know our place vis-a-vis the Almighty. Mm. So important, those words. Dan Henninger, writing about Pope Benedict in the context of Putin and Xi, who see a weakening of the moral character of the West and an opportunity for their totalitarian interests. I don't know if you saw this over the holidays. There was like a Santa Putin piece of uh, communist propaganda put out by the Russians. And it was uh, a gay couple with a transgender child. That's how it opens. Getting gender neutral toys. And then Santa Putin comes down the chimney, changes the picture of the gay couple to a man and a woman, makes the boy a boy, and leaves boys toys. 
So now you have, I mean, it's it's remarkable. And and again, you have a godless communist KGB commissar like Putin using Christianity against the West. That's how the script has been flipped. Uh, and Cardinal, ben, I mean, excuse me, uh, Pope Benedict the Sixteenth was a ardent defender of the West and the Judeo-Christian values that are the foundation of the West. Reason and faith, he wrote, come to each other's assistance. Only together will they save man. Entranced by an exclusive reliance on technology, reason without faith is doomed to flounder in an illusion of its own omnipotence. Faith without reason risks being cut off from everyday life. As uh, in comment on, on that observation by Benedict, Henninger wrote, This writer's longstanding solution to reducing the country's problems has been, go to church on the weekend. Learn that, in fact, you're not number one and not alone. It has become unfashionable, if not forbidden, to talk about religious belief in the context of public life, the religious right and all that. But perhaps the moment is right to revive Benedict's argument for religion's proper role in organizing a coherent, self-confident society or nation. Perhaps it is. For more on this, we're pleased to be joined by Mary Fiorito, who's uh, with the Ethics and Public Policy Center and was a close confidant of Cardinal George. Mary, thanks for joining us again. Appreciate it. Oh, it's my pleasure. Thank you for having me. So um, your reflections on Pope Benedict's importance. Oh, it, it, he's going to be a doctor of the church, which is reserved for only those, um, you know, among the saints who have made the greatest intellectual contributions. Um, you really have to, it's, it's Augustine and, you know, Ambrose and Catherine of Siena, and, and um, one of the greatest saints within a hundred years is going to be a doctor of the church. There are a few who have made the type of intellectual contributions that he has made. Um, yet at the same time, everything he wrote was very accessible. Um, I used to be very intimidated by his writings because he, he just was so erudite. I didn't, I thought they were sort of beyond me because I'm a lawyer and I'm not a theologian, but he wrote a series of books called Jesus of Nazareth that just essentially talk about the, the life of Jesus. And you can sit down and read those. And, you know, you can just be a high school graduate and you can understand what, what he's saying. He had such a love for the Lord that he wanted to make that love and that relationship um, not only known to other people, but he wanted to tell everyone, you know, you can have this too. Everyone can have this kind of relationship with the Lord. And in fact, you look at, I think he's written 66 books and countless papal encyclicals. Someone was listing all of his works. Yet his very last words, um, while he was alive according to his brief secretary, were, Jesus, I love you. And I think that just sort of sums up his whole life. Everything he did was out of love for the Lord, but he wanted people at all levels to be able to understand that love and to understand what it means for them personally. So, you know, again, he could approach it as a great intellect, but also as a very simple man uh, whose whole life can be summed up in those last words, Jesus, I love you. Does, his, love uh, does the fact that he stepped down when he felt he no longer could fulfill the duties, does that speak to his humility and love of the Lord? Oh, I, absolutely, I think so. I mean, he recognized this is a job for someone who has to have a full grasp of all of their faculties, not just their mental faculties, which I think he had up until the end very much, 
but simply physically, he could not do the job as it needed to be done. And, you know, again, he had, as you put it, the humility, which is, you know, that, that's really, all the great saints say that's the one thing that the devil doesn't know is humility, because the devil is simply all about pride. Yeah, and contrast that with all of our octogenarian politicians in this country. Correct, who, who won't leave and, and know that it's past their time if they can't let go of the power, right? They don't want to let go of the um, notoriety and the fame. And none of that meant anything to him. What, what meant, again, his whole life was focused on the Lord. What can I do to make him better known and loved? If I can't do this job, it's, it is not right for me to stay. And I cannot imagine he didn't pray about that. My, my guess is probably for a couple of years before he did it. He didn't. This is, not, this is a very measured man. I just, he didn't do things quickly or lightly, you know, although he did actually have a great sense of humor, but he, he certainly didn't do things, you know, on a whim. So my guess is he really prayed about that. So I absolutely, it speaks to his humility, you know, and his love for the church. He put the church before himself. Well, Mary, what are some stark differences between Pope Benedict and Pope Francis? Oh, well, they're, uh, they're personality-wise, Amy. They're, you know, you have, um, you know, an Argentinian who's very, very, um, outgoing, who's very much an extrovert, uh, who's very much a man of emotion. And you have a German, you know, who's very much an intellectual, who, you know, Cardinal George always talked about what he said were the caricatures of Benedict. And, you know, one of them being that he was, you know, God's Rottweiler and the Panzer Cardinal and all of this, because he was the, um, God because Rottweiler. he was the, I, isn't that great? And the Panzer Cardinal is my other favorite, but, um, yeah, right. because he worked, he, he headed up the congregation for the doctrine of the faith, which is sort of, they called him God's watchdog and all of these things, because, you know, he had to co- correct errant theologians in that role. That was part of it. Um, but as Colonel George said, he was actually a very shy man. Um, there's some great pictures that when, I don't know if you remember when um, Pope Benedict came to the United States and um, visited with the Bushes at the White House, and, and, and Mr. President and Mrs. Bush were so gracious to him and had all the flowers in the, um, the, the garden at the White House. Uh, they planted yellow and white tulips for the papal flag. They were just so, like, every small detail they attended to, it was so beautiful. But there's, there's a really funny picture of Cardinal George sitting next to Pope Benedict um, at, at, I think, one of the seminaries in Washington where they had evening prayer with all the priests. And just the looks on both of their faces, you know, the Cardinal is looking very puzzled, puzzled, and Pope Benedict is just, you can just see he's just pained to be in these public um, moments because he was actually a very shy man. He didn't like doing any of that kind of yeah, stuff, you know. But b- beyond, the, beyond the personality, though, the real, the real uh, difference is... Uh, where uh, Benedict sought to take the church consistent with his predecessor, J.P. II, versus where Francis is taking the church and is poised to take it even further, and I mean in the direction of, um, well, leftist politics, including yeah, uh, including sort of redefinitions of marriage, gender perhaps coming. Yeah, I, I'm not sure that I would go that far with Francis. And in fact, um, you know, I have a friend who actually worked for uh, Francis when he was uh, Bergoglio and, and the Cardinal Archbishop of Argentina, who says, you know, the way he sort of made out in the media um, isn't actually an accurate reflection of what he thinks. I, I think he may be surrounded by people who might share some of those ideologies, but I don't know that he himself would go that far. Um, he, he again, you, you're quite correct, Dan, that Benedict's papacy was absolutely a continuation of John Paul II, 
And, I mean, you look at some of the things Benedict did, particularly around the areas of sex abuse, very much moving in, you know, removed a um, incredibly powerful priest named Father Maciel, who headed up an order called the Legionnaires of Christ, who was unfortunately engaged in incredibly, you know, both sinful and criminal behavior, and removed him. And, he was, and, and people said he was too powerful to touch, and Benedict got rid of him. He was the one who put the um, brakes on, on Theodore McCarrick and silenced him and restricted his ministry. So, you know, Benedict really moved on things. He was absolutely um, disgusted and appalled by any kind of, you know, sexual impropriety and sexual abuse. So he was very, very firm on those. Um, I think you have with Francis maybe a different sort of approach. He wants to be, you know, what he says, accompanying people, welcoming people, and then perhaps uh, leading them to Christ. I think Benedict's approach to telling people the truth would have been a little bit different, saying, you know, you, um, justice requires that I tell you the truth about who you are as a human person and what God wants for your life. Um, so I think it's more a, a difference in approach rather than a difference in belief. I, I don't think that Francis, um, you know, believes in, in, in transgenderism or anything even close to that. I just think it's the approach he feels you need to get to the person first, accompany them, then show them the truth, Whereas Benedict was more of a, we'll show you the truth first, and then help you understand why this is why this is good for you, and why this means that God loves you, changing your life and and living it according to God's plan. I, I hope you're right. I mean, I, I know that uh, Pope Francis. Uh, this is you know, glossed over by the media, of course, that wants to make Pope Francis the first not Catholic pope, but. Um, uh, he, I know he called marriage redefinition an anthropological regression, and so that Correct. speaks to his views. But I, I just, you know, I mean, he's still he's still a man, and he seems very taken by the sort of political debates of the day. And I don't mean right. sort of fundamental uh, free societies versus totalitarian ones that John Paul II took up and that Benedict took up. I mean the. Uh, identity politics of the day and um, right. you know we got a cardinal in Chicago who seems to be taken with those same issues right well you know he also called abortion he said it's like hiring a hitman to solve yes. a problem yes I mean does. you know and, and that and so he has been you know actually um, he doesn't pull any punches when it comes to some, some things and he has sort of that you know again South American temperament and he speaks very forcefully um, and I think you know you're quite right Dan that you, you do have sort of a secular media who doesn't really want that part of the Pope to, you know, to be known to people. You know, they want they want people to have this impression that he's saying you don't need to live your lives according to the Ten Commandments, and that's absolutely not what he's saying. I mean, take, for example, the Who Am I to Judge line. Do you remember that? He um, was speaking of a man who had same-sex attractions as part of his temperament, and, you know, the Pope said, Who Am I to Judge? But he said, Who Am I to Judge? After saying... If this is someone who is trying to convert and live his life as the Lord would want, right, so uh, chastely, uh, then who am I to judge? But all you heard was the who am I to judge, which, like, went around the world as a soundbite, but that's not at all what he was saying. He was saying that, that you know, people who have same-sex attractions are called to live chastely. Um, and, and, you know, you judge an action, but you don't judge a person. That's what he was saying, and it mm -hmm. got completely misconstrued. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, again... He's a very different person. I think his approach would be different to Benedict, but I, I believe he holds the deposit of the faith. I, I, I certainly haven't seen anything that leads me to think otherwise. She is Mary Fiorito. She's an attorney. She's a fellow at the public, uh, the Ethics and Public Policy Center and uh, a former close confidant of Cardinal George in Chicago. 
Mary, thanks as always for joining us. Appreciate it. Oh, it was my pleasure. Thank you for having me. Thank you. And she joined us on our turnkey.pro answer line. Connect with Dan and Amy on the AM560 The Answer mobile app. Just text the word app to 64636 to download the app today. This is Chicago's Morning Answer with Dan Proft and Amy Jacobson on AM560 The Answer. Top of the morning, Dan and Amy. We'd be remiss if we didn't remark upon Virginia McCaskey's 100th birthday. Oh, that's right. Happy birthday. Turned to 100 today. Wow. All right. Now sell the team. No, I'm kidding. Oh, sort of. Dan. Yeah. No, you can wait till you move it to Arlington Heights to get the big payout. No problem. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Well, happy birthday to Virginia McCaskey. She's, she is. I. She's I, a juggernaut, man. She's a, she, she's a great lady. And mm-hmm. she's, I, I don't want to out her, but she's uh, quietly conservative yes and, and it's uh, too bad she can't be vocally loud pro-life pro-family yeah yep. uh it's a it's a good family they still uh, live in the same house they all grew up in yeah i mean it, it is a i mean i they are a faithful family as we were talking about benedict at the end of last hour um you know maybe not the best ownership group in nfl history but yeah they're more important things um all right talking about um this fight over uh, the House Speakership we talked a bit about last hour. You know, here here's the thing about it. And these uh, big businesses, corporate America, I mean, it's turning me into Ralph Nader. Not really, but sort of dispositionally. And there was a good thread by a, a guy who formerly consulted for Coca-Cola and other big companies on Twitter the other day. And it speaks to some of the issues that are in play on the Hill. And I think in this speaker's race. And you heard it from Chip Roy, the Republican from Texas, the other day when he nominated Jim Jordan, who doesn't want the job, talking about having the tools and the structure to take up the fight on behalf of American families who are getting hornswoggled by the federal government and all of its manifestations on a daily basis, getting swamped by the swamp, if you will. Coca-Cola. I mean, this doesn't surprise me because we we know what a uh, woke corporation Coca-Cola is. You know, they were part of the whole boycott uh, Georgia because of the uh, election reform law, all the hysteria surrounding that when Major League Baseball pulled the All-Star game and all that. Kaylee Means is this dude's name. He tweets, early in my career, I consulted for Coke to ensure sugar taxes failed and soda, as we call it here, pop, was included in food stamp funding. I, I say Coke's policies are evil because I saw inside the room. And, of course, this is relevant to us because this was the one thing that generated a tax revolt in Cook County oh, in the last right. hundred years, the sugar tax, right? The three-cent sugar tax, and moms lost their minds. Yeah, because I will not pay That's the line. three cents more for my grape crush. Right. Um, early in my, So I say Coke's policies are evil because I saw inside the room, says Kaylee Meads. The first step in the playbook— 
paying the NAACP and other civil rights group to call opponents racist. Mm-hmm. Those proposing the sugar tax. They're racists. Even though it was proposed in Cook County by Queen Sugar, Tony Preckwinkle. But it was opposed. There were a lot of outspoken uh, oh, yeah. black commentators that opposed it. And a lot of county commissioners that opposed it. They did not win re-election. And they, they opposed it because they were what? They were acting in the best interests of who? Of the people they're representing. Is that right? That's mm-hmm. what you think? Uh, the uh, And this is not a, 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 a endorsement of any tax. I don't want more money going to Cook County government in any form or fashion. But the backstory is important here. Going back to Kaylee Means, Coke gave millions to the NAACP and the Hispanic Federation, both directly and through front groups like the American Beverage Association. This picked up in 2011 to 2013 when the farm bill and soda taxes were under consideration. And he's got, he provides documentation uh, to substantiate uh, the claims he's making. Thus, conversations inside these rooms were depressingly transactional. Essentially, we, Coke, will give you money. You need to paint opponents of us as racist. The effort was successful, and the message was carried in thousands of articles between 2011 and 2013. Of course, media doing the bidding of Coke as well. Coke's position was clear. Soda is one of the cheapest ways to get calories, which is a flagrantly inaccurate statement when factoring in the health consequences. Kaylee Means goes on, I watched as the FDA funneled money to professors at leading universities, as well as think tanks on the left and right to create studies showing soda taxes hurt the poor. They also paid for studies that saying drinking soda didn't cause obesity. Now, you can say that a soda tax, pop tax, would be, is, is regressive because it is. But that's, that's a substantive discussion to have in terms of whether this is a appropriate place for uh, to, 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 to try to enhance state revenue. But to characterize opponents, for those proposing the sugar tax, as racist just because they were proposing the tax, including some, as you mentioned, like black politicians locally who opposed it, or to say that uh, uh, heavy consumption of these sugar-laden drinks doesn't, engender obesity that's not honest not mentioned in these studies is that incontrovertible fact that sugary drinks are one of the top causes of obesity and diet and uh, diabetes soda companies are deeply embedded in the usda so much so that the agency carries discredited talking points like quote there are no bad food there are no bad foods only bad diets This ignores the fact that sugar is highly addictive and has negative nutritional value. In the end, racial tensions flared, soda spending was kept in SNAP, food support programs, and many of the soda taxes were defeated. Of course, this has been a disaster for low-income communities. Addictive sugar drinks should never be included in a government nutrition program. And I just recount this... um, Twitter string from somebody who was clearly inside the room and tracks this and he provides, as I said, substantiation and all the reporting that was done that was, you know, the handiwork of 
of paid consultants play and 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 these and front groups for them placing these news articles and so forth. It's just not transparent. It's not honest. You want to have an honest debate about uh, a particular tax? That's fine. You want to call your opponent, and this so this goes in both directions. I would be an opponent of the tax, but I'm not going to call proponents of the tax racist because they're proposing a tax. I may call it wrongheaded. I may say there are that's an irresponsible way to raise revenue for a government, and so on and so forth. Um, but but you're not racist if you're necessarily you're by by, by just the act of proposing a tax increase. And I also wouldn't suggest that the science says something that it doesn't. But Koch enlists these quote-unquote do-gooder organizations that are out there to protect the interests of minority communities, NAACP and other civil rights groups, Latino quote-unquote civil rights groups, and they do their bidding for cash. And then the politicians as well. On both sides of the aisle, who are either bought and paid for or don't want to take up the fight. And it's just a one example and perhaps a small one, but I think it uh, speaks to the dishonesty of our political discussions and the frustration that many fair minded Americans have about that dishonesty. You know, looking for. Diogenes, maybe you won't find him on Capitol Hill, but you won't, you're certainly not going to find him in many corporate boardrooms either, or in the leadership of just about any of our civic institutions, and that becomes a problem. All right, when we come back, we'll uh, be joined by Scott McKay from the Hayride, talk more about this speaker fight. Dan and Amy, Chicago's Morning Answer. It's like a hot, steaming cup of information to start your day. It's Chicago's Morning Answer on AM560, The Answer. Top of the morning, Dan and Amy. Uh, we're now joined by Scott McKay, publisher of the Hayride, contributor Spectator. Scott, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Hey, thanks for having me. So um, the um, this House Republican fight over who shall be speaker, um, Kevin McCarthy seems to be attempting a war of attrition. How's that war going? Um, well, I think he's the one that's going to get attrited if he doesn't <laughs> just do what's necessary to get the votes. Um, and this thing has been really strange in that, like, he moves all of his stuff into the speaker's office. And he runs around talking about how he's earned the job before he's got 218 votes. Um, and, you know, what this has kind of shown is, you know, it's all about Kevin McCarthy. And the moment calls for something totally different. The moment calls for uh, it being all about the movement, it being all about the, you know, finally allowing Congress to serve the needs of constituents rather than K Street. Um, and I mean, because exactly, hey, you know, Kevin, that, that, that to me, that that's there's this is a question of his competence, his political uh, IQ is that the complete misunderstanding or lack of understanding of these 20 holdouts. He thought he could just sort of uh, become, you know, by by behavior, make himself the presumptive speaker and everybody would fall in line. How do you not know the attitudes of so many members of your caucus? Well, look, he was supposed to have 250 seats 
or at least, you know, 240. I mean, this was supposed to be a red wave election back in November, and it was supposed to sweep the Democrats out and give him a big majority, uh, you know, with which he wouldn't even have to worry about the Freedom Caucus and some of these other guys that are detractors of his. Yeah, but he knew he'd he, have the he votes he without him. But he knew he didn't have those votes as of November 8th. Right. And his, his response to that was to act like he did, uh, and just assume that the entire 222 in uh, the Republican caucus in the House would just fall in line and he could do arm breaking and, uh, you know, rhetoric to get these people to come on board. But from the very beginning, I mean, the Freedom Caucus offered a bunch of rules changes that were essentially process reforms in the House uh, that were needed, that were absolutely necessary. I mean, if you compare... Uh, the House of Representatives to practically any state legislature, what you're going to find is it is a much less effective and much less functional legislative body than any of those. And of course, you know, nobody is really super happy with their state legislature either, but at least you have things like members being able to bring amendments on the floor, or you have a single subject rule on legislation um and and things like that the way congress works it's a dictatorship it's i mean it's it's almost useless to be a member of congress because it's not a functioning legislative body i mean look how they handle the budget um there, i mean there's a well established procedure you're supposed to have 12 different appropriations bills that get marked up in committee and then get brought uh to the floor in you know in a timely manner and instead it's continuing resolutions at the last minute or, or worse, things like this stupid omnibus bill that they passed on Christmas Eve. So who's going to um, blink? Oh, sorry, Scott. I didn't mean to interrupt you, but who's going to oh, blink sure. first? I mean, the 20 anti-McCarthy holdouts or someone from the majority of 201? I'll put it this way. I don't see that 20 moving unless McCarthy basically gives them everything they want. And supposedly last night, that was kind of the direction that this thing started going in is, is McCarthy offered up a bunch of uh, uh, extra uh, bennies to these guys. Like, I think it's a, you know, they, they, they played around with the motion to vacate the chair. Now all you need is just one guy to, to, to stand up on the floor and make the motion, whereas before you needed, I guess, five people willing to be sacrificial lambs to, uh, to do that, so uh, you know they did that, and they, apparently the Freedom Caucus is getting a bunch of people on the uh, on the Rules Committee, which was you know uh, something that they had asked for that everybody kind of scoffed at, and it looks like McCarthy's going to going to offer that to him now, um, and they're even he's even willing to offer up uh, a, a vote on a congressional term limits bill. Uh-huh. which I would have never thought he would do. But he's that desperate that he's going to allow them to bring that to the floor. Um, which, I'll be honest, this is like if if Kevin McCarthy has to give those considerations and he gets to 218 as a result, it's a better speakership, even if Kevin McCarthy is no good, than it would have been at the beginning of this. Uh, because you actually have... At that point, now, he's got to stick to these promises, which is the number one reason why he's still struggling, because they don't trust him. Right. Um, but if, if, if these things act like if, if it's on the up and up, and, and there's not a double cross, and they have been able to wrangle these promises out of him, um, you know, you, have, you actually have a House of Representatives that 
by its rules, is going to start being a lot more responsive to the people and a lot less responsive to K Street. And that's why this, honestly, that's why this has been reported the way it's been reported by the, the, you know, the legacy media that, oh, the Republicans don't have their act together and this is embarrassing and it's a mess and blah, blah, blah. No, this is democracy. And it's negotiation. This is people going to the mattresses to get what they're what they came there for. But then, and, what happen- uh, but then on the on the backside, though, if he uh, makes all these concessions, is there then a concern that some of the moderates supporting him right now would break and say, "You gave too much away to the Freedom Caucus. Now I want X, Y, and Z if in, in order to secure my vote." And then you have a faction of twelve to twenty the other way. Well, it's. I mean, it's certainly it's theoretically possible. Um, but after after these guys uh, have like look at Dan Crenshaw for example right uh, has called these people terrorists and oh you never negotiate with terrorists and all this kind of stuff all of a sudden he's going to become a terrorist uh, I mean like <laughs> yeah, these guys right. have put themselves they've painted themselves into a pretty tight corner in that you know it's like the the entire uh, republic crashes down if Kevin right. McCarthy is not made speaker. I mean, like that's the posture that these guys have all adopted. So if if McCarthy has to make these concessions to Freedom Caucus people to get to two eighteen, they can't slide out the back door because they've already you know they've already set themselves up. It's either Kevin McCarthy or chaos. And so, well, oh, now you're for chaos. Um, I, you know, so I don't think that, I don't think that that necessarily works. I think it, you may have that risk if McCarthy really can't get there later today and has to bow out and then, you know, Steve Scalise probably would be the next guy up. Um, and, and if, you know, if he starts trying to make these deals to get to 218, uh, and, and you've got moderates that, that want to kind of jack him up. You may you may see that. I don't think they can do it with McCarthy because they've all wedded themselves so closely to him. Well, what about, I mean, they, one of their demands is that McCarthy's super PAC not get involved in the primary. So uh, clearly they're afraid of retaliation. Yeah, well, and that, I mean, that's smart because he's done this before. I mean, you've got a few people in that House who have had the Congressional Leadership Fund spinned against them in primaries. Um, you know, mostly it's they've spent against them when they before they were incumbents. So I don't think that they would uh, that they would do that. But if I'm a member of the Freedom Caucus, I don't want other people who are potentially going to join the Freedom Caucus if they get elected to Congress in 2024 or even in a special election between now and then. Like you know, I, I'm, I'm going to spend money or, or donate money or or, or we're going to spend PAC money or whatever from the Freedom Caucus. I, like I don't want that money to be wasted because CLF comes in and and drops a million dollars in a Republican primary against them, because uh, I'd like to grow the Freedom Caucus. Um, yeah. So that like that's a that's a a very uh, reasonable demand. It's something that you know you shouldn't even have to make that demand. But you know these are this is one of the th- like sins that Kevin McCarthy has committed against these guys that they're holding a grudge as a result of. So. Um, and, and apparently I saw a thing this morning, uh, the club for growth, uh, came out and said, yeah, you know, we cut this deal and, and now we're not opposed to McCarthy if he, if he sticks with it. So, you know, like that's something, that's something that should have been taken care of six weeks ago. Okay. Cause they've been demanding this for a long time. And why are we just seeing a deal cut on this now? This should have been done in early December or before. 
and and he held out on something that frankly he had no leg to stand on. You do not. um, I mean, this is what Mitch McConnell has done with the Senate for years and years is to sandbag and sabotage, you know, conservatives who are running in Republican primaries for the Senate. You just saw a perfect example in Alaska this past year with Kelly Shabaka getting what six million. Yeah, you don't know what an impact six million dollars spent in a in a race in Alaska would have, and that's what Mitch McConnell spent on um, on Lisa Murkowski, who the state party and and the state party's voters weren't interested in. Right, and they and then he hides behind you know we protect incumbents just as a matter of rule. Right, no, I get it. Uh, and I get why the Freedom Caucus is taking this position with respect to that specifically and the, the lack of trust, as as uh, as many have said, by watching Kevin McCarthy over an extended period of time. It's not just this election cycle. It's what he's done over the last decade, too, that has con- that has generated concerns. Scott McKay, well, publisher. Said, yeah. Yeah. Uh, Scott, we got to jump. Uh, publisher of The Hayride, yeah, no contributor problem. to The American Spectator, author of The Revivalist Manifesto as well. Pick up that book. Scott McKay, thanks as always. Appreciate it. See you, Dan. See you, Annie. Have a good one. Thanks, you too. And he joined us on our turnkey.pro answer line. Before you see it on TV, share it on Facebook or read about it in the paper. Hear it here first. This is Chicago's Morning Answer on AM 560. The Answer. If you're looking for the latest news, insight into what it means, and the sharpest opinion, there's only one station in Chicago where you can turn, and it's this one. We're AM 560. The Answer. Top of the morning, Dan and Amy. Psychologist Jordan Peterson came to international renown when he spoke out against the Canadian government's effort to criminalize the improper use of pronouns in their view. In other words, you had to use pronouns according to uh, the wishes of the person you're describing in the interest of gender identity politics, right? Yeah. And not hurting anybody's feelings. Well, he's come to international renown again. I mean, he possesses it, but this time not of his own doing, not of his own choosing. The College of Psychologists, which is the professional governing body in Ontario, has appointed an investigator to examine complaints about Jordan Peterson's comments on Twitter, on the Joe Rogan show. Uh, They did that back in March. Uh, At the end of the year... They released a decision ruling the comments at issue appear to undermine the public trust in the profession as a whole and raise questions about your ability to carry out your responsibilities as a psychologist. What were some of those comments? For example, uh, saying that uh, he would refer to Ellen Page with the pronoun her, even though she's now transitioned to Elliot Page. He called an advisor to that uh, grade school drama teacher they made prime minister up there in Strange <laughs> Brewland a prick. He um, um, got in uh, heap of big trouble for objecting to a Sports Illustrated swimsuit cover using a, with a, a plus size model, tweeting, sorry, not beautiful, and no amount of authoritarian tolerance is going to change that. Mm-hmm. The impact risk in this case is significant because the comments, quote, may cause harm, the commissars in Ontario found. 
and the punishment they're suggesting is counseling, social media counseling. Oh, really? Proper thinking, you know, to, 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 to properly think that would help, quote, mitigate any risk to the public, unquote. So they want him uh, to see counseling so that he's, he goes along with what they believe in? Well, he wants – they are essentially mandating counseling in order to keep his license as a psychologist. Mm. That's the implication. Uh, Jordan Peterson responded, who exactly was harmed, how, when, to what degree, and how was that harm measured? I love him. <laughs> Perfect. Um, uh, he um, uh, also said, among other things – that about a dozen people from all over the world submitted complaints about my public statements on Twitter and on Rogan's show over a four-year period, claiming I had harmed them. I've been accused of harming people, although none of the complaints involved in the current action were clients of mine, past or present, or even acquainted with any of my clients. And even though many of them fa falsely claimed that they were or had been clients of mine and were allowed by the uh, College of Psychologists in Ontario, to have their complaints investigated despite this falsehood. If I comply, the terms of my re-education and my punishment will be announced publicly. I've already had the second most serious category of punishment levied against me and have been deemed high risk to, quote, re-offend, unquote. His message to Canadians, your physicians, lawyers, psychologists, and other professionals are now so intimidated by their commissar overlords that they fear to tell you the truth. That means your care and legal counsel has been rendered dangerously unreliable. Think about that, and think about the power of licensure, whether it's a uh, professional body or a state agency. For example, in Illinois, we have the Department of Professional Regulation that right. licenses doctors, nurses, manicurists, uh, male techs, yeah, right, male techs, cosmetologists, yeah. and on down the line. And think about how now what you say on social media, there's no such thing as private speech anymore. What you, what you post on social media, maybe even in a private conversation, what you say, if it's reported back, can cost you your licensure that's required for you to practice your profession. And again, canary in the coal mine here. You think that this is only a Canadian issue? Something like this could never happen in the United States. Well, then you haven't been paying attention very closely, have you? 312-642-5600, turnkey.pro answer line, 64636-DA, turnkey.pro text line. Well, is Would he going to do it? Is he going to go to this re-education camp? He said, I'm willing to if okay. the uh, psych organization agrees to make absolutely every word of the training sessions fully public. Wow. So that everyone can decide for themselves what is actually happening and let the chips fall where they will. Oh, that's, that's a great fantastic. idea. It's a great oh. idea. And he says, uh, he says, you know, they, they won't concur to make this public. Of course not, because these are goons. And what do goons do? They beat you up in a back alley. They don't operate in the light of day. But think about this. I mean. Uh, for example, uh, doctors. I mean, he's a psychologist. Right. He earned that degree. Uh, and he's a practicing or has been a practicing psychologist. I don't know what the state of his practice is, but he obviously has had many, many clients over many, many years of practice in addition to being a university instructor at the University of Toronto for a time and elsewhere. 
I think he's had a stint at Harvard even before he, you know, became a crazy person because he came out against uh, the new Marxists and their assault on the West. So now he's a crazy person who doesn't belong in the profession. But but think about the implications. If you're a professional who uh, has oversight by a professional body, you're a lawyer, ARDC, or as I said, any professional that's got, that uh, requires state licensure. And think about the implications of this. If you have the wrong view, then these organizations, which as is everything in uh, almost everything, uh, in the area of governance dominated by the left, then your license is on the line. So not only is that chilling, to say the least, the, the bigger question is, would you go to a left-wing doctor, psychologist, any person that is out and proud leftist and uh, is licensed by the state or a governing body or has a, a professional governing body providing oversight? Or would you leave your psychologist or counselor once you find out that they're a you know minor Marxist or progressive? Well, I, I don't think it takes much much investigation for the most part because the left in all these professions has been sanctioned, and the right is being targeted, and so it's and this is not. It's not a political question as much as it is a confidence in the service you're getting question. In other words, if the main qualification for one doctor over another is that this doctor is out and proud left and this other doctor is quietly conservative, who do you go to? Is the person that's out and proud left, are they just there, number one, because of their politics, and number two... More importantly, will they do what is ever politically expedient, not to serve you, the patient, but to serve the overlords? In other words, uh, think about all the euthanasia laws that are, well, in place in certain states and being advanced by the left. Think about the entire, uh, I mean, think about what's happened to uh, public health professionals who were public health professionals and professors in good standing until the pandemic occurred, till COVID yeah, till came, and they didn't go along with the program. And people uh, are ha- that's happening right now. People are having their uh, the the medical boards go after them for their their licenses. Yeah, think of every doctor that signed the Great Barrington Declaration. They've had right. to fight to get their their career in the right. first on social media. They had to fight to get that back, but. If you don't think that this could happen to them, that they have to go it's, to it's a happening. counselor. It's happening. Right? Who, the, uh, why am I blanking on his name? Uh, the guy from Texas, te- uh, Texas A&M. Oh. McCullough? Peter, Mar- was it Peter, Peter McCullough? Um, no, no, it's not Macri. <laughs> bit, he's Johns Hopkins. But, but, I mean, so it's happening. So, again, th- that question... I wouldn't go to a leftist doctor if I knew, and as I said, most of them, it's not going to be hard to find out because they're encouraged and because the power of conformity in our culture, most of them will tell you who they are and you should believe them. Now, how do I know that that person is looking out for my best interests and abiding their professional responsibilities when their professional standing is contingent upon their 
political fealty to the left. I might want to tell you a story, but it's kind of gross. <laughs> my gynecologist. Well, you can't make a well, statement like that and not okay, tell us now. Okay, fine. My gynecologist, who obviously delivered both of my boys. All right, I've already heard too much. Okay. <laughs> During a no, regular routine pap smear. No, I won't get graphic. He Please. started talking about how he hates Trump and everything. And I'm like, why? Well, I, just, I just want to get the routine exam, please, and then I'll leave. I don't want to talk about politics. I mean, it's just so, it's so stupid. Don't even bring it up. Just do your job, and I'll do mine. You know, that's, you know, check me out, and then I'm going to leave. Yeah, I get it. But now the question is, can you trust that uh, OBGYN? And again, I, I like try, you trust them with the most precious thing in your life, delivering your kids. You know, so. well, and it's difficult because you, you, I'm, I'm trying to separate this from. Right. I don't. I mean, I don't necessarily care if you're a Trump voter or not a Trump voter. Generally speaking, when it comes to professional services, though, I'd rather patronize people who are like-minded, particularly in these these times. Um, but, but now I have to question why you're doing what you're doing. If there's anything controversial, think of whether or not uh, I go to to uh, a doc and I say, should I get my should I get my 12 year old son vaccinated or should I get him a booster now in these times? Should I get him a booster? So are you giving me the advice that you really believe or are you giving me the advice you feel compelled to give so that you're not targeted by uh, professional regulatory bodies, your colleagues, the you know what I mean? Right. I, I, I'm going to recommend something, but you can't tell anybody. Or I'm doing this because the school district mandates it or because the CDC recommends it. Or are you giving me advice based on your judgment as a professional provider of medical services? How do I know? This is how politics destroys everything it touches. Yep. And do they get a kickback if they get, you know, distribute more vaccines? That's what I was always wondering. Jim in Port Charlotte, you're on Chicago's Morning Answer. Hey, guys, how you doing? Thanks for taking my call. It's already happening here in California. They passed that law about misinformation for doctors. You think that's yeah. going to make a right. doctor tell you the truth? Hell no. Right. right. So, Amy, can I ask Amy a question? Sure. Yeah, about about at the uh, checkup? <laughs> no. <laughs> it was <laughs> negative. We're fine. You. <laughs> 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 um, did, did your boys take this vaccine? They did, but they are not getting boosted because they had COVID. And I talked to my pediatrician. He said, there's no need. This is a low-risk group, and uh, we're done here. And I said, Give me right, that pediatrician's you. name. we got to report him. Oh. <laughs> right? so, per, per Dr. McCullough, as you were just speaking about, uh, I, I think you're, you're, well, it's my opinion. But also McCullough said, uh, anybody who's had this shot uh, should have a cardiac MRI even for mild car- myocarditis. But I guess mild myocarditis can go away on its own. I mean, you can even get it with a cold. I, I wasn't aware of that. But uh, it's maybe something you should check just so you can keep your boys healthy. Oh, yeah. Oh, no, you don't think that weighs on everybody's minds, That what we did to our children? Sure, Why I got my saying- kids vaccinated was because I wanted them to stay in school and to stay in sports. Because if I didn't, if anyone on that team or anyone in their classroom had COVID, they were out for 10 days. Thanks for and the that's, call, Jim. You know. Well, it, here's the thing, though, too. And, and so your pediatrician, other pediatricians, I can't speak out. I can, I can privately counsel you, but I can't speak out. I can't say anything because then I'm going to be targeted by my profession. 
Well, he told me, he said, every, you know, everyone's different. Your kids have no comorbidities, but say, you know, Susie's got diabetes and asthma. I might recommend a booster. I'm like, okay, uh-huh. that's fair. Uh-huh. And, 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 you know, and, and again, that was how many, what, a year ago, year and a half ago? Yeah. And what do we know about, uh, what have we learned in that intervening time period? We've learned a lot. And we still have a lot of questions, a lot of things we don't know, but we have legitimate questions about. And there's not much interest in providing answers to those questions except in certain quarters. And, that, and that's a problem. And certainly not with these professional governing bodies. Uh, Ralph Rantoul. Hey, good morning. I dropped my medical doctor because he was leftist stooge. He uh, wanted me to get max to the max to the max, um, and, and actually wouldn't cooperate with me when I needed to get a, an exemption letter written because Valparaiso University wanted to drop me. Actually, they threatened to suspend me without pay if I didn't get all boosted up. Um, and that, um, that was a serious thing because I thought, wow, what a totally left-wing institution. But I should have known about my doc because he wore those ridiculous dance clogs and that should have been an attribute that, absolutely you know, no, telltale a lot of people sign. wear yeah. those because telltale sign. No, they're on their feet all day. Oh, I know why people, yeah. oh, I know why people wear them. <laughs> I just think that guys yeah. wear them. It's, it's a little bit weird. Thanks for the call, Ralph. Also, if your uh, doctor wears, or any professional wears a male open-toed mm-hmm. footwear, drop oh, them. No. Plastic Jorts. shoes. Plastic oh, shoes. Oh, Crocs? Yeah. You don't like Crocs? Jorts as well. You could throw okay. Jorts in there, too. Uh, we got a text message. I refuse to knowingly allow Democrats to look at my genitals. It's a good policy you should adopt. It is a good rule to live by. And that's from Sean from Elmwood Park, by the way. Paula and Racine, you're on Chicago's Morning Answer. Yeah, so our pediatrician is is far, far left. Um, And most amazingly, it was during the 2016 election. My kids were probably six and four. And my six-year-old had a book of world flags out. Happened to be the page where the Russian flag was... (laughs) And our pediatrician went off on a five-minute diatribe of Russia, Russia, Russia collusion, ending with the kicker, and who would ever vote for Trump? And my my four-year-old pipes in, we are. Good Um, for him. Yeah. And then he was put to sleep? (laughs) What happened? Well, yeah. I mean, you know, (laughs) we are still with him. He is an excellent doctor, but you just have to live with the fact that he's got these. It's almost like a tick. You know, and then he comes back to reality, and then he's fine, and we can talk, you know, but it's 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 really just something. Thanks for the call, Paula. More gyno exams. Tina and Joliet. <laughs> hey, guys. Thing, Dan. Uh, Hi, welcome Tina. back. I almost needed medical help after having to listen to Ramblin' Ray for three days while you guys were gone, so I'm so glad you guys are back. Um so I was at my gynecologist see not too uh, long ago, and I just came right out and asked him where he, where his thought process was on all the uh, transgender lunacy and how many male vaginas he had the opportunity to look at, and and he was he was uh, brutally honest with me, and he was like, these people are mentally ill. This is craziness. I don't understand where. My uh, profession has gone wrong, but it's, it's insanity. And he went on to tell me how he was at Nordstrom, and they have, like, a whole 
uh, section of clothes devoted to this this um, trans ideology, and and yeah, he was so he passed the test. He's a, he's, right. a, he's a good one. Thanks for the call, Tina. That's awesome. <laughs> This is Chicago's Morning Answer with Dan Proft and Amy Jacobson on AM560, The Answer. Top of the morning, Dan and Amy. We mentioned this in our conversation with former First Deputy Assistant Cook County State's Attorney Bob Milan yesterday. And... uh, I think it bears repeating. I don't know that we emphasize this enough. Both legislative leaders and the governor are attorneys. Don Harmon, Chris Welch, Uh J.B. Pritzker all have law degrees. Some actually practice law, not J.B., but the other two. So when it comes to the purge law, the so-called Safety Act, including version 1.0 that was signed into law to much fanfare by all of those three and their Uh, party, they knew what they were doing. And you talk to any professional prosecutor, not named Kim Fox or Al Reinhardt, Eric Reinhardt of Lake County. And to a person, they will tell you this would have been devastating to the public safety of every Illinois community. To a person. So because they were compelled to make some amendments out of political expediency after they all survived the November 8th election intact, shouldn't be forgotten what their actual intentions were and are based on what they did with 1.0 and frankly even 2.0, which is now under review by the Illinois State Supreme Court as we all know. Even 2.0 is not without its problems. And don't forget that Governor Pritzker made large campaign contributions to two of those judges for them to get onto the high court. So they owe Pritzker a victory because he paid for them to get on the Supreme Court. And Governor Pritzker has weighed in on the state of play on that uh, judicial proceeding. That Again, the Supreme Court staying the implementation of the law that was scheduled to take effect Jan 1. And now we're looking at uh, perhaps a decision by the state Supreme Court in March. Yeah, he's not backing down. Well, just to clarify, um, the the decision by the Kankakee judge was about the Pretrial Fairness Act, which is a piece of the Safety Act. Um, and, and the rest of, you know, and obviously, uh, you know, I signed the law and the legislators voted for it. And there is, a, a I think, a common and comfortable belief that, uh, it is constitutional, uh, but, you know, the court system will, um, you know, make a ruling on it through the Supreme Court uh, sometime in the next few months. I'm disappointed uh, that there's a delay in the implementation. Um, j- justice shouldn't be delayed, and uh, we want our neighborhoods to be safer, and uh, putting the Pretrial Fairness Act into effect will make our neighborhoods safer. That's yeah. his story, and he's sticking with it, Dan. Of course he's sticking with it, Ooh. and hoping probably privately that the Supreme Court bails him out of this prick, uh, predicament he put himself in. For more on this, we're pleased to be joined by Kendall County State's Attorney, one of the 100 of 102 county state's attorneys who oppose the Safety Act in its original incarnation. 
He is Eric Weiss. Eric, thanks for joining us again. Appreciate it. Thanks, Dan. Amy, appreciate it. So um, it seems uh, our conversation with, uh, obviously, the, the parties to the suit in Kankakee County, which is 65 county state's attorneys, yourself included, um, as well as Bob Milan yesterday, is um, you know, it's pretty clear the the uh, Kankakee County Circuit Court judge's uh, ruling is pretty square on the constitutional issue when it comes to uh, determination of bail, uh, pretrial detention, and uh, that on the matter of the law, separating it from the politics, that um, even Safety Act 2.0 should be held to be unconstitutional. That's your view, clearly. Yeah, clearly that's, even with the amendments, Dan, uh, you know, we filed the lawsuit under a diff- couple of different legal theories, and being part of the litigation team, you know, we've been up front with everybody. Look, we're not we're not opposed to some of the criminal justice reforms. We're not opposed to some of the provisions that are in the act. And actually, some of those actually still survive. Didn't find the whole act unconstitutional. Just the pre-trial fairness portion. I mean, you've got to do it the right way. When you infringe upon the Constitution, when you step on the toes of the people um, and try to amend the Constitution by legislation, you know, that's when state attorneys have to step in. And speak to uh, this uh, this infringement that you describe. Put it in in your words in terms of what the what the, exactly this infringement is. Well, when you and, and when you look what just happened, when you amend the Constitution, you take it to referendum. We just had that. And whether you agree or disagree with the, the, the workers' rights amendment, uh, that's how you do it. You take it to a vote. You you take it to the people, and and they make the decision of whether their Constitution should be amended. And that's how you. That's how you do that in this case, and and they chose not to do that for whatever reason. I can only speculate. I don't like to to guess why people do things, but um, they didn't do that, and they've they've infringed upon the rights of the judiciary. And and you know we have a very simple theory of, of power when it comes to the state and, and the nation is there's a separation of powers. Um, one one part of the government doesn't infringe upon the other part of the government. That's how we that's how we keep a, a good society. And, and what the legislature, did, the governor did, is they've infringed upon the rights of the judiciary in this case. Well, what's your we reaction when you well when he says that neighborhoods are going to be safer because of this? What's your reaction to that? Well, I, I respectfully disagree with that. I think when you take away the ability of a judge to make a determination and you tie their hands uh, of what risk an individual has to be released in the community, I don't know how the community would be safer. I've been doing this 26 years. I don't know how long the governor's been a prosecutor, um, if at all. Uh, But I can tell you that giving judges more tools than less is always a better way to to have the judicial system for, for everyone. There's another aspect of this that we discussed with you and Glasgow and others the uh, time limits that are put on prosecutors to bring cases to trial, uh, lest the defendants be released pending trial. Now, those time limits were extended in the amendment process, so in version 2.0, but they're certainly not as long as, say, um, they are in New Jersey, where they went to no cash bail system. And I wonder uh, if we still have a problem from a prosecutor's perspective, with those time limits that were that are now imposed, if the if the Safety Act 2.0 were to go into effect, in terms of the uh, resources required to bring the strongest case possible to uh, to trial in the uh, time prescribed. 
Yeah, I, I think that, that again, it, it goes back to those that don't do this job don't know exactly what it takes to do this job correctly. And everybody wants justice to be done, from prosecutors to defense attorneys to judges to the people. Uh, and to do that, it takes time. Uh, you can't rush a case. Um, and no one wants someone to sit in custody longer than they need to be pending trial. But the practicality is with uh, DNA, with laboratory results, with gunshot residue, um, with just follow-up investigative work, the time frames that they put on these cases are just not practical in most cases. And some they are. Uh, some are, are simple. They're wrapped up in a nice neat bow. Uh, there are three witnesses. You don't have any crime lab information, and you can do those cases in 90 days. But that's not the majority. And, and uh, today's criminal justice system is not like it was 30, 40 years ago. Um, we have all this technology. We have all these body cameras that are part of the Safety Act. Uh, we have these things that ensure that the right person is in custody. Um, and to do that, it, it's going to take some time, and it's going to take longer than 90 days. And having this, you know, what was originally an automatic release in 90 days, just is is just ludicrous, to be blunt. There's just no way in most cases that that's going to work. So we're still going to we're still going to potentially release have a murderers, yeah. yeah, right. That's what I mean. We're still going to have potentially a problem in, in the 2.0 version of people being released that uh, should not be in, in a prosecutor's mind released pending trial. Yeah, and that, yeah, and it doesn't give the judges the discretion as to to allow for example the prosecutor to come in and say we've got these laboratory results on a on a very serious sex assault case and we want to get these um, results so we know for sure and we have everybody you know justice is being done it doesn't stop the clock and that's the problem is that again, it's not a practical solution to a problem that can be easily addressed if done the right way. You know, it's just as an aside, I mean, it's remarkable, too, because uh, this is a bit of a political statement, so you don't have to comment on it, but the the um, the, the, the hard limits they want to put on pretrial detention for those they even uh, would allow to be detained at all, yet when it comes to, uh, you know, people who uh, engaged in vandalism or rioting on January 6th, I don't hear any comment about people at the federal level being held uh, pending trial for a year and a half for much lesser crimes that they're even charged with than we're talking about uh, here. And that's with all the resources of the Department of Justice and the federal government, too. So I just, you know, the the um, the interest in no cash bail and the interest in pretrial release of criminal defendants is very different depending on the politics of the situation uh, uh per these individuals that we're talking about responsible for passing this law in Illinois. And I think it's worth noting that just because of how political this actually is, as much as they want to pretend that it's not political, their their motivations are a strictly political, I would argue. And I think that highlights the uh, the point, the, the uh, their difference of opinion as opposed to what they want to do locally versus what they would support or not support federally. Um, one, one other piece of this that uh, I want to talk about, because you mentioned that uh, they did not the uh, Kankakee Circuit Court uh, judge did not rule the law unconstitutional in its entirety. The impact it will have on policing, since uh, you work closely with police uh, per the investigations they do and the evidence they collect so that uh, you can take it to trial. Um, the, 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 there was some there was a, some concern expressed. And I know there are some police organizations that eventually came around to support it. Maybe that was partly politics, too. But some concern about um, rules of engagement, 
about uh, the uh, uh, sort of uh, uh, training requirements as well as the sort of investigative oversight of police via things like this anonymous hotline that's part of the part of the law. What's your perspective on the police portion of the law? I think, like you said, there are some good parts of the law. I don't want to sit there and, and tell you that everything is bad. I said, you know, body cameras, for example, are a great tool. Um, they protect law enforcement in 99% of the cases from false al- accusations or um, false allegations of misconduct in, in most cases. So most law enforcement, I think, support those type of things. They support um, training. They support um you know, things that always allow us to do our job better, and I'm speaking law enforcement in general. Um, I know when it comes to anonymous complaints, those type of, of, of situations, you know, that, that that's starting to push the envelope. And I understand that, you know, we want to encourage people to report misconduct, but there's got to be some accountability. I mean, if, if I, I said, hey, and I'm not going to tell you who I am, but Dan Prop okay. is an insert thing here, or Amy Dix is a person here, and, and this is what she or he did wrong, and this is why. And, and that goes in your file for the rest of your career. But nobody knows who you are, and nobody knows why, or if you have a vendetta, or if you arrested someone in my family, or, or did something. Uh, you know, there's got to be some accountability and a, and a way to substantiate those type of, of complaints without ruining someone's career for absolutely no reason. We don't do that in the criminal justice system. Right. You know, you can't file but an anonymous... you can't get that expunged from your record either. Well, well also, too, I can't, I, I can't go... I, if I file a false police report, then I face legal repercussions. If I file a false yeah. uh, complaint on, on the hotline, I don't. What, yeah, where's the, that's, where's the, yeah. the sense in that? You can, you, can, you can go to prison for filing the false report, and you can, nothing will happen to you if you file a false one against an officer. That's, uh, that's ridiculous. No. Right. No, exactly. And nothing's uh, been changed in that, huh? It's still the same way? Nothing. Well, yeah, the the, the Safety Act portion remained. I mean, that, that part was not addressed. The only thing that the Judge Cunningham addressed in his ruling of unconstitutionality was the issue of the pretrial fairness portion. Okay. Right. And this, and, this is something, and this is something, too, importantly, just as a reminder here, the uh, another stakeholder in the criminal justice system, in addition to the public, the, but on the professional side, sheriffs. You had uh, the county sheriffs were aligned with county prosecutors uh, uh, throughout the state on this as well for the same reason. They're they're not interested in seeing uh, people accused of violent crimes, in many cases, not for their first time uh, being released either. Correct. And and that was a a good partnership with law enforcement. They both, you know, prosecutors and, and sheriffs realized that, you know, this is just this is bad all around for everyone. And so it was nice to see it wasn't just uh, prosecutors complaining. It was law enforcement in general as well. Um, what about the uh, one-third of county prosecutors in the state who did not join the suit that was filed and adjudicated in Kankakee mm-hmm. County? Um, what, 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 you know, internally, uh, to the extent you can speak to that, what's the, what's the divide there? Well, I, I know that there were some that wanted to sit at the negotiation table to try to get, as you put, uh, version 2.0. Um, if we were unsuccessful in the litigation, um, that we would have a more workable pretrial fairness portion. And, and they were successful in getting some of the changes that were uh, the egregious issues um, in the, uh, I'll call it, as you said, you know, 1.0 um, done. Um, you know, at this point, there's a finding of unconstitutionality. I hope that they would join in with us uh, in support um, going forward with the Supreme Court um, and showing their support that this is unconstitutional. 
um, and and agree, you know, getting 102 of us would be great. I don't expect that will actually happen, but um, the vast majority of, of prosecutors, including those that didn't, uh, would join in, in supporting us in the Supreme Court. I know several of them filed for temporary restraining orders in their own county uh, that were granted to prior to the Supreme Court issuing their stay of the of the pretrial fairness portion of the statute. So um, there's some encouragement that, uh, you know, again, people do things, have to do things for different reasons, and I, I respect that. Um, may not always agree with it, but I respect it. Um, and hope going forward, now that we have a ruling, that uh, we'll get everyone on board. Yeah. If your uh, county state attorney is one of the 37 who didn't sign on, you might want to call the office and see where they're at now that it's been held, uh, that portion has been held unconstitutional and encourage them to get on board because 37 initially were not. Uh, He is Eric Weiss. He's the Kendall County State's Attorney. Eric, thanks as always for joining us. Appreciate it. Appreciate it. Thanks. Have a good morning. Thanks, you too. And he joined us on our turnkey.pro answer line. You're listening to Chicago's Morning Answer with Dan Proft and Amy Jacobson on AM560, The Answer. If you're looking for the latest news, insight into what it means, and the sharpest opinion, there's only one station in Chicago where you can turn, and it's this one. We're AM560, The Answer. Top of the morning, Dan and Amy. Uh, Mr. 10%, uh, the big guy, that would be President Biden. He was in Kentucky yesterday, hanging with his buddy Mitch McConnell. Oh, yeah, new besties, huh? And uh, took the time out of his day to uh, step to a podium to congratulate himself and uh, Mitch McConnell and those 17 Republicans who voted for his quote-unquote infrastructure bill. Uh, And um, he uh, did so in front of the uh, Brent Spence Bridge there in Kentucky with these powerful words. Traveled over 140 countries around the world. As I was, I'll paraphrase the phrase in my own neighborhood. The rest of the countries, the world's not a patch on our genes. If we do what we want to do, we need to do. It's never been a good bet. Yeah. <laughs> and then it gets loud at the end. What does that mean? Can I have a translation, please? The world isn't even a patch on our genes if we do what we want to do and need to do. You know, I think uh, President Biden should take the country on a a visit to this uh, fictional neighborhood he alleged in which he allegedly grew up. I oh yeah, with Corn Pop as his neighbor. Love to meet know. Corn Pop. Right. Love to meet Corn Pop. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Does Corn Pop uh, even exist? Does anybody, did anybody actually try to find Corn Pop? Can we talk to some of uh, his students, his fellow students in law school? Oh, that's right. Um, that one in his class. You know, it's a historically black college he taught at allegedly. I mean, the the lists of uh, God, fabrications lies. from this guy is endless, but. As well as aphorisms like that, uh, the old neighborhood aphorism, if America does what it needs to do, the world isn't but a patch on our genes. Powerful, powerful rhetoric for more on Bidenomics and other topics. We're pleased to be joined by John Tammany for our first conversation in with John in this new year. John is uh, RealClearMarkets.com. He is uh, FreedomWorks. He is the author of the book. The Money Confusion, How Illiteracy About Currencies and Inflation Sets the Stage for the Crypto Revolution. John, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Hey, what a resume that is. Yeah, it's very impressive. <laughs> it's almost as impressive as the president's. Um, uh, we, you, know, I, you know, I know you're a free market kind of guy, but um, uh, 
the uh, infrastructure bill uh, and infrastructure in general, which is a favorite uh, a pot of money to create and from which to spend for politicians. You know, we got this our public goods, John. We got to build those roads and bridges like Biden and McConnell and and those Republicans in the Senate are doing. So uh, kudos to them, right? <laughs> well, you know, uh, all government spending is a tax. It's just as simple as that. Uh, governments extract precious resources and move them around in politicized fashion. President Biden was in Kentucky yesterday politicking about government waste. And so it, by definition, slows down economic growth. And people say, well, we need roads and everything. I was just down in Orlando at Disney. They built the roads for themselves. The, the notion that we wouldn't have roads without government is laughable. There's always an incentive to connect people to businesses. And I just think we've got to remember that as the economy evolves, what we need is going to evolve, too, and this includes different kinds of airports that will probably uh, reflect the needs of, of people that are changing all the time. When government spends on infrastructure, it's every bit the conceit as when it spends on uh, poverty programs and other things. Um, China is uh, walking back its uh, hardline COVIDian policies a bit, and uh, this has drawn the ire of one Zeke Emanuel, uh, we love the Emanuel family here in Chicago. Uh, Dr. Zeke, you'll recall, famously in the spring of 2020, uh, he was, you know, well ahead of the learning curve. I mean, he called for a year and a half lockdown of our economy right out of the gate. So he was, you know, um, as I said, more enlightened than those who wanted to lock down and then wait and see and pretend that they were uh, going to uh, uh, measure their policies based on the efficacy of them. Um, and uh, you take issue with Zeke Emanuel's criticism of uh, the CHICOMs relaxing their COVID policies. Yeah, he says that they're doing it dangerously. Uh, too much freedom. Too much freedom is dangerous for people. It was obnoxious when they said it about us, that if we were left to our own devices, we would engage in behavior that would cause us to overrun hospitals with sickness and death. And it's obnoxious about the Chinese. The people are the market. And so free people are not going to just actively go out and get sick and die. We, we have the gene within us to preserve ourselves. And so when you leave people their own devices, they show you how to avoid sickness, how to avoid the hospital. And so for Zeke Emanuel to say this, he's saying that government should basically blind the people to how to protect themselves from the virus. When are we going to wake up to this reality? Well, I mean, um, so I, the pub, the public health professional people would say, well, look, Zeke Emanuel is a doctor. Uh, he's an MD, John, and uh, these other doctors, these infectious disease experts and so forth, they have um, guidance to provide because they're experts in the field and lay people are not. And so we should listen to the experts and we should go where the science and data suggest we go. It's a fair point. And so he's a doctor. He says that people who, when the virus is spreading, we should stay apart from each other. Lots of Chinese are doing that right now. Lots of Chinese are wearing masks. Lots of them are still sheltering in place. Go around any city in the United States, any airport, you'll see that lots of Americans are still doing that. That may be good advice. It may be not. Uh, but what's got to be stressed is that Emmanuel is one person. He may be a brilliant one person. But he can't possibly be smarter than the collective genius of 330 million Americans and over a billion Chinese. 
There's a reason that markets work. It's not that there aren't experts in government. There are. But experts never match up to the collective genius of, of people uh, combining their, their knowledge together. That markets work because it's everyone's knowledge t- together, not just one. So I guess, you know, I mean, it's one of these sort of fundamental questions. What's your default position is to trust people to act in their self-interest or to trust the state to provide for everyone's collective interest, right? That's a big question that people need to consider. The big question, and I think, unfortunately, even libertarians, people we caucus with, missed the boat back in, in 2020. Uh, I never heard Cato Institute once talk against the lockdowns. Mm-hmm. I never heard Students for Liberty. I never heard lots of libertarians. And so we can't be situationally for freedom. But beyond that, we've got to remember that the people are the marketplace. And so the most offensive arguments for the lockdown for the original ones, oh, the hospitals aren't ready for all the sick who will come in, as though we would act foolishly and get sick if left to our own devices, if we weren't locked into our houses. Oh, 2.3 million Americans will die unless they're locked down, as though we would actively go out and and find the behavior most conducive to death. Uh, Freedom is most crucial when something allegedly threatens the most. And then I would add, if something allegedly threatens, that's when government force is the most superfluous, precisely because people are going to make wise decisions on their own. They're going to protect themselves. Let's not forget that the red states, you know the states that don't believe in science, by the New York Times' own admission, they were the states where people freely sheltered in place first, freely bought masks and hand sanitizers first because they were doing it on their own. They did not need to be forced to do this. They're also well, the places that free, that people freely chose to move. That, too. Freedom works. It's not some, it's not some slogan. There's a reason that markets always outperform government decrees, and, they, and they, the reason they do is because the collective knowledge is much better than the knowledge of one or two people. And so in this case, we keep relying on experts, and experts say, if you don't listen to us, there will be a crisis. Well, that's a self-fulfilling prophecy, because once you substitute the knowledge of very few for the collective knowledge of the marketplace, you have a crisis on your hands. We had it in 2020. They did it to the Chinese. Freedom works not because it's a great slogan, but because it's a market. So in China right now, reportedly, allegedly, there's this new variant that's ripping through China, and they're not sharing their information. Do you think if it comes here to America that we're going to go under lockdowns once again? Um, I'm horrified that we might. Um, I don't think it's going to work again, and that was the other mistake they made. Because they cried wolf so many times, no one's going to trust them again. And in terms of, the, of this, vi- this virus that's ripping through China, that's precisely the point. If something is threatening out there, the Chinese are going to take precautions on their own. No one needs to be forced to avoid sickness. I've got a wife who quite literally hasn't touched a, a public door handle for all the time I've known her, and I've been married to her for eight years, almost nine. She always opens with her elbows because she's afraid of germs. I don't know why. It drives me nuts. But people <laughs> on their own protect themselves. Uh, I'm going to file that in the okay, why Dan Proft is single uh, file. <laughs> I'll put that story in there. Um, so now the one exception to this, as you well know, of the few not having the uh, intelligence of the collective in a market environment, the one exception to that is the Fed, where a few mystics, uh, uh, starting with Jay Powell, have all the knowledge to properly calibrate uh, money supply and interest rates and that sort of thing. How's that going? 
Well, it's, it's going in that markets work no matter what. Markets state their case. Uh, this notion of 0% interest rates was always a laugh line. There's no such thing as easy money. Uh, how about you, the three of us, go to a bank today and talk, ab- and talk about how we need money for our software startup. Do you think we could get anything? No. Interest rates are always high for those who are risky. They're always low for those who aren't. And for those who want to pursue super risky businesses as they do out in Silicon Valley, there's no bank that will ever touch you for that. And so the Fed can sit here and search for a purpose and talk about how it's going to help the economy grow. It can do no such thing. Credit and and resources go to their highest use, and the Fed can't do anything about it, thank goodness, because if, if Jay Powell ran the economy... We wouldn't. We'd be too poor to be doing this show right now. We'd all we'd all be working in, in ways that we don't want to work. Uh, now I have to take issue with a piece you've written recently because you <laughs> dare to criticize this uh, free market haven that that we call home, Illinois. You're critical of a law that was passed by our enlightened class uh, in 2021, the Predatory Loan Prevention Act, which imposed a 36% interest rate cap on all loans made by non-bank and non-credit union financial institutions to individual borrowers. And uh, I, I'm horrified that you're not on the side of the little guy, the common man, uh, and you would, uh, you would uh, agree to, you would allow usurious interest rates to be imposed on, on the little guy. Yes, aren't I awful? I, yes. I'm bad in that way. Uh, but it, it's certainly true that they imposed this law, and the result was that those most desperate for credit, credit in the near term to basically uh, basically pay bills and to avoid financial impairment, were obviously locked out of credit markets altogether as a consequence of this. Uh, there's no such thing as shortages unless government is involved. And so the result of the Illinois law was that there were shortages for those most in need of credit. Uh, and also, it was it proved kind of a red-line racist law. Uh, who, were, who was hurt most by it? Uh, poor black people. Uh, they were shut out of the credit markets the most by virtue of the imposition of this terrible law. Uh, I love... Econ 101 Lessons, uh, John Tammany, modern-day Henry Hazlitt, editor of RealClearMarkets.com, director of the Center of Economic Freedom at FreedomWorks, author of The Money Confusion, How Illiteracy About Currency and Inflation Sets the Stage for the Crypto Revolution. John, thanks as always. Appreciate it. Hey, thanks for having me on. Thank you, and he joined us on our turnkey.pro answer line. If you're talking about it, Dan and Amy are talking about it. It's Chicago's Morning Answer on AM560, The Answer. Thanks for listening to Chicago's Morning Answer podcast sponsored by Signature Bank. Signature Bank takes pride in helping customers grow their business and provide unmatched banking expertise, custom financial solutions, and the industry's best technology. So whether you're a business looking for a deposit relationship or needs a ready source of financing, Signature Bank is the right bank for you. Call today at 773-467-5600 to hear how Signature Bank can help your business grow and thrive. Member FDIC, Equal Housing Lender.